I wanna move to Nova Scotia Don't know where it is, but I know it's over Many mountains, deserts, and oceans Far away from here I wanna be the leader of a marching band In command with this dick in my hand Look at me, everybody, yes, I'm the man But I'm far away from Yaraquay There are many kids in Southeast Asia They watch Nickelodeon and imitate them Little white devils wanna be Jamaican MTV is not for freedom I wanna move to Nova Scotia Don't know where it is, but I know it's over You're listening to Grace, Geltman, and Weld on the Hammer Factor Take it away, boys Um, should we get going? Yeah, let's do it all right, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 67. My name is John Grace, producer here at the show. On the phone, horn, Skype, by way of internet, coming out of Whistler. I believe Whistler, is that correct, Lewis? That's correct. Poly, policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. And coming at me from what looks like the brick basement of a pizza parlor. Why would okay, a legend... I'll take it. Uh, co-founder of Immersion Research, John Weld. Boys? Sort of. Uh, Weld's got sort of 90s stand-up comedy vibe going. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> like, like, what's the deal with Confluence? <laughs> so I just flew in today. How about those airports, folks? <laughs> oh, man. So, you know, 66 went nuclear. Mm. We got a big show to talk about. We got Paddle Sport Retailer Wrap Up. We have an esteemed set of guests to talk about Colorado, Colorado River rights, water rights in general, gore race, double rants and raves, because our number one comment after everything that went on with the last show was, dude, where's our rants and raves? So we're going to open feel like and I close. Do we even hit 50% on rants and raves normally? We try to. I mean, we at least try to. That was our big request. We got to follow through with that one. I got mm. one, so I guess I could use that one now and try. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, hell of a show lined up. Um, dude, I got to start out with, have you guys been following Hurricane Dor- Dorian? I mean, it's like distant news. It's like something's happening. Oh, in another corner of the world. That it's it's not going to hit the states or not with any kind of force, but oh my god, dude! It sat three days with 180 mile per hour winds over the Bahamas. You you got to check out some of the the damage out of that place. I just can't imagine for three days, 180 mile per hour winds. I mean, that's just insane. Like I just I've just been glued to it. Just like I just can't believe this is happening. I can't believe it's still not moving. That's gnarly, man. But we do have a big show. We got uh, some special guests. We got Hattie Johnson, who is the Gore Race organizer. She also works for uh, American Whitewater. We've got two experts, Christina Wynn and Dan Nimella. I think I'm saying that right, Nimella, um, who are pretty much our experts on Colorado Colorado water rights. I'm going to mess that one up all show. Um, Before we get too deep, we owe everybody a Rants and Raves. Rants and Raves is everybody's favorite section of the show. This is where your hosts go on a little bit of a rant or a little bit of a rave about something they're loving or something they're not so much loving. Anybody like to start us off here?
Beltman. <clears throat> um, man, I got a rave. I'm uh, have you guys? Are you guys familiar with this race, the Red Bull Hardline? It's a mountain bike race. It's sort of uh, it's a it's a downhill race, but like significantly gnarlier than like even like the World Cup downhill tracks. It's uh, I would say like sort of analogous to the North Fork Championship for mountain biking. They get a bunch of guys who are like World Cup downhill racers. It's in uh, Wales, I think. Super sick event to watch. Super gnarly. And uh, Baby Bird's brother is in for this year. Just nice. badass. Yeah, like his little brother is a uh, like sick mountain biker, like raced World Cups as a junior. Uh-oh, did we lose Lewis? The World Series right uh -oh. now, and I just saw, got the the, the invite for Hardline, which is fucking badass, man. I'm like, for, I don't for know, those I got, don't I've never met him, but I don't know. Baby Bird is? Uh, Ryan Lucas, whitewater kayaker from New Zealand. Badass dude. Badass paddler. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Pretty pumped that his his bro got into Hardline. It feels like a, like a pretty big deal, and I don't know, it's pretty cool to have somebody to cheer for who you... I don't know, I feel like it's sort of part of your social circle, even if, you know, I don't actually know him, but nevertheless, <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. There's, a, there's a connection there for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like all the kayakers should be should be pulling for Baby Bird Jr. or whatever his nickname is. <laughs> well, I gotta, Lucas, check it out. When does that event happen? I think it's in like a couple weeks or maybe it's in October. I don't know, sometime in the next month or so. Well, Hardline. All right, I'm gonna. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'm gonna rave. I got a simple rave, and this is just. Uh, I don't know. I think I probably raved about it on the show before, but I'm just gonna rave about half slice boats. The fact that this is a category that's back, and just the fun potential, especially when maybe the river's a little low or whatnot. It's just uh, half half slice. So I'm gonna rave you about took that. my you took my rave, really? Yeah, yeah. It wasn't exactly that, but it was very very close to that. I feel like this is a rerun rave. This is like, well, I guess it's like you know what else I'm gonna rave about? <laughs> the fact that I think the industry is finally abandoning the concept of a nine foot kayak, like that being some superficial barrier in there. Well, how's this, what's this mean to racing now? Like the new the new large rewind is how long? I don't know. I paddled it on the green the other day, and it was, I think it was 9.7, 9.6, something like that. So wow. what do you, how do we, how do we race this boat? <laughs> Chris Hipgrave from Piranha was asking me about this, too. He, he was talking about this. I don't know, man. I'm just an open-class racer. I think the race course dictates what boat you paddle, but that's just me. Well, since you took my rave, I have a rant. What do you got? I'm going to rant against... Uh, you know, the paddle sports show was this past week. Paddle sports show is where manufacturers go to Oklahoma City and they gather together and they show next year's goods to retailers and retailers can see what they want to order. Um, we've talked about it a bunch before, but um, at this year's show, when we show up, you get a little name badge and they handed us a lanyard package in a blister pack. I think that's what it's called with a plastic whistle in it which is essentially handing most people a piece of garbage, just a plastic piece of trash. Is that this picture you sent over? That's the picture. 
I mean, come on, guys. This is the outdoor industry, and you're handing us plastic trash with our lanyard. Really? I mean, it's just that's so tone deaf. And then, and then some no kid having moron was like, "Bring it home to your kids." I'm like, "No, I'm not bringing a whistle home <laughs> to my kids." You stupidest idea ever. So. As I was leaving the show, these things were strewn all around the floor, right? <laughs> After they're all packed up, there's hundreds of these things around the floor in the garbage and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, I'm crying out loud. Come on, let's, we can do better, right? I mean, I wasn't there, but it seems a little weird. <laughs> well, I sent a picture. Put that in the show notes. I want people to see this. I will. I will. I'm looking at it right now, and I don't know. So how they fit the lanyard inside of that? It was below it. Like, the whistle comes with a lanyard to put, put around your neck, I guess. I don't know. They're like, well, you can use this for your show badge, too. It was, like, an added value. Huh. It, it's better not to do anything than to do I, that. I often have that feeling at outdoor retailer around reusable water bottles. Like, I feel like reusable water bottles are the new disposable water bottles. Like, they're just as bad. Like, every every single person on Earth now has a... A, like triple the sufficient supply of reusable water bottles like we don't need any more like i don't need your brand name on a nalgene bottle or a clean canteen or a hydro flask or like any of that stuff like i don't need it i have like 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 i have enough enough reusable water bottles to last me through the coming apocalypse and the one after that like no more a couple of years ago, an outdoor retailer, after seeing a million of these things, I did a fake, I did a fake paddle sport survey, and one of the questions was how many, how many is the right number of stainless steel growlers? Ten to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to sixty, you know, per person. Because <laughs> if you go to the show, I mean, that's that's the direction you're headed, right? If you look at the marketplace. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. That's a little weird to hand out that whistle. I don't understand why they was it like a. Is this meant to be like a safety whistle? Are I people guess. like are people like summoning their buddies like across the shore floor, <laughs> the floor sh- show with the safety whistle like at all? No, no I don't <laughs> <All> know. <times. laughs> That'll be in the show notes. Oh, dog fight. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude! I wish people could see the view of you sitting out there on the deck right now. Is oh, Adrian, is Adrian around anywhere? Uh, we haven't crossed paths yet. If you see her, bring her on the show. I will for sure. Bring her over. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll read her email. We got an email from Adrian. We'll get to her in a little bit. Um. Okay. So, so we, we can we discuss the elephant in the room for a minute? What's that? What what happened last week with you and Calhoun? You mean the swift and precise attack where Calhoun came on and in a matter of moments, like just on the green race, labeled as a sexist and called on my friends beaters? Yeah, that part. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know the attack continues. Oh, don't we know it? You know, I mean, <laughs> there's emails going out. I get it. I get. I, I get a, a text from somebody, probably twice a day since the the last show, which was what a week and a half ago, and they're like, "Dude, did you see what Calhoun posted?" Yeah. I'm like, no, I didn't see it. Yeah, I was shocked how many people, I shouldn't be, but I was shocked. I'm always shocked how many people listen to the show and how many people at Paddle Sports Retailer had listened to the show and wanted to discuss that above and beyond anything we had to offer in terms of products. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if I should be apologizing for that or... I'm I'm glad to see you made it back to the gorge without any, like, black eyes or or 
apparently any worse for the wear. Mike McKee and the Prana Boys uh, see me as sort of the uh, the um, who's that talk show? Jerry, what's his name? Jerry Springer. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Know. I don't understand that. I don't really have much of a response. So all I know is like, my hands on the button, and it was just like bam, 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 and I was over it. Well, we sat, Geltman and uh, Calhoun and I sat on Skype for a couple minutes trying to decipher what was going to happen next. Uh, and then we just we realized that you were not coming back on, and that was the end of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's really not a whole lot to talk about. You know, you're a sexist. Uh, well, thanks for calling me names, you know. Your friends suck. You know, it's like I don't, I don't know where to go with any of that commentary. And, and to be clear, I mean, we all... I think we're all aware that we need to have more women on the show. And I think we have been improving in that regard and we will continue to improve in that regard. Well, I, w- I want to discuss that because Adrian wrote us an email there we go. and she had the t- statistic where I, I haven't done the math in this, but I think she said we've, we've had eight women guests on the show uh, out of however many she figures 12%, right? And so I want to break down that math a little bit. So we're clear on this for one thing. We don't have a guest every show. We have, a, I bet, 30% of the shows right off the bat. There's no guest. That's A. B, <clears throat> a lot of times we have industry people on the show, usually, usually at my behest. And like it or not, there's not many women in the industry, uh, you know, in, in the manufacturing side of things, at least, was what I'm talking about. And then in times we've, we've attempted, like uh, we had a woman who worked at a well-known paddle sports brand or a paddle brand who couldn't make it on the show, um, but we've tried. Uh, and then we're down to athletes, right? And I think when you start getting down to that number, it's not 12%. We're much closer to, you know, I'm not going to say 50-50, but a disproportionate representation of women in our sport. And and I'll point out, these women come on the show not because they're women, but because they're interesting, right? True. Uh, I mean, we had Nicole on because she's one of about, what, six people in the country who make a living paddling? Uh, I mean, it's a rare thing. Uh, we had Anna Wagner on. She paddles a boat that's I don't I mean, think half of her body weight. Did we? <laughs> What's that? I don't think we oh, no, no, I'm, I'm Not Anna Wagner, but I mentioned Anna Wagner. She's paddling a boat half her weight, which is remarkable. I mean, she's slaying class five in the same grace. That's like you paddling a boat that weighs 120 pounds. Easy. Right? Easy. I mean, how many times? I'll tell you another thing. How many times have I said that Nori Newman is the best whitewater paddler in the world, period. Right? Yeah. I hear you, man. I, I mean, if you I take her, if you take her credentials and slalom and whitewater. I've said this at least, at least twice that she, I feel like she's the best whitewater paddler. And did you see what she did the other day in Quebec? Was that it? Running the big, big gnarly waterfall? Yeah. 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 I, I mean, mean, at the risk of sounding like we're pandering to the people who say we're sexist, whatever. That's, that was an amazing rapid that she ran. Yeah. Right? Did you see the Eddie that she caught above it? I mean, to me, that was the knuckle biter. But well, I don't know. Maybe it should go. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're three dudes on the show, and maybe it should be more forefront that we're bringing women on the show. But I'll be honest. Like we got Hattie on the show, Gore Race organizer. It had nothing to do with her being a girl or a boy. I, it's just hard for me to entertain with that, especially when it's getting when you're. It's just a hard one for me to entertain. I don't know. I mean, I want us to do better. And like, but like, I don't, I'm not, 
I'm not saying that because we've taken some shit about it. I'm just like, I'm, I truly think we have room to improve, but I'm not going to like, I don't think we need to beat ourselves up about it either, you know? You just got super hot, Lewis. Did you just change your mic or anything? No. Huh. So, I mean, I don't know, like, on, on that same front, Lewis, what would your recommendation be? I mean, I think we should aspire to have, you know, as many women guests as we have men, male guests, despite that that's not representative of what's going on in the sport. I think that there is a case to be made that just increasing the visibility of the women who are in the sport helps keep things moving in the right direction generally towards a more inclusive and representative environment. And, you know, hopefully as a community and as you know, sport, we get to a place where we don't have to think about it anymore someday. But like right now, I think we sort of do have to think about it. And, you know, and like I, I think we do. And I think we're, we're, you know, improving, but I think we, we can continue to do better. That's all. I mean, and I'm not like, I don't think we need to beat ourselves up about it, but I think we should make a concerted effort to have women on the show, you know? I mean, I don't think anyone's disagreeing with that, but to suggest that we're perpetrators of some sexist agenda here, I think is not fair at all. No, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, that's, I mean, yeah, let's, we can let that go as far as I'm concerned. I don't think we need to be burdened by people riled up for unrelated reasons. Anyway, dude, let's move on. The reason I hit the button is just, I called, I brought Jeff on to brag about him and the race, just like I do with everybody from Don Howdy Shell and Cuyahoga Falls to... James Bird and North Fork race to, you know, racing's like one of the gr- gleaming bright spots of this sport right now. And I think what really kind of turned me off the most was just like there at the end when you guys were all, it was like Beavis and Butthead. It was like the <laughs> Potomac. I think, was, I think that was just, just awkward laughter from Weld and I because we didn't know what else to do. <laughs> it was like the Potomac River Beater Police came out. And we're like, <laughs> yeah, like, I don't even know, dude. Should we pivot from that to your that article you put in the show notes about uh, not being a beater? <laughs> okay, so this I mean, is. I feel, like, I feel like I wrote that article ten years ago and I wrote it better. But <laughs> well, so that's what that's what I said in the show notes. I was like, "Is this the style of the modern social media era?" So first of all, this is an article. I'll put it in the show notes. It got passed around a good bit on the social media, and it was in Blue Ridge Outdoors. And basically, it says. The title is Your Beatering. Your Beatering is Not Cool. And what's funny about this article is I read it. I saw it through. And as I was reading it, I was like, it was written by Golder Goldstein, you know, some anonymous author or whatever. But as I'm reading it, I'm like, man, that sounds like something I'd say, you know, or whatever through the whole thing. Come to find out like a day later, I get on Facebook and there's like a whole group that has attributed this article to me and they're going <laughs> through the conversation and they're like, well, what John was saying here and, blah, blah, blah. and I was like, finally, after like the 153rd comment in this group, I was like, guys, just full disclosure. I didn't write this. That's so funny. Somebody just mentioned that to me in the parking lot the other day was like, oh yeah, somebody was just telling me about this article that John Grace wrote about like not being a beater. And, like, described the article to me, and I was like, are you sure you're not thinking about that thing that I wrote, like, a long time ago? And they were like, no, no, like, Grace wrote something that's, like, on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I agree with a ton of the stuff in the article and whatever, but it was just so funny that uh, it was attributed to me. And and I was like, no, 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 I really didn't write that. I mean, there's some good points in there, but, I mean, did you guys read the article? 
Uh, I skimmed it. (laughs) You know, one thing I'll say about that article is I saw a bunch of very experienced paddlers, you know, uh, professionals, if you will, and whatever, sharing it with, uh, I don't know, like some, some little remarks of this and that and the other. And I just think that it would be better when there's an article or something like that comes out to share it with some bit of solution. So, for instance, you know, here's uh, some good instructors. Get a weekend with Chris Wing. You know, go to a Kaleva camp. You know, like do some attainments. These are some ways to improve that rather than just just like that, like shaming. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like I kind of have a problem with – it's like if someone's like not very smart, you just don't call them an idiot. You know, or maybe you do. That's kind of a dick move, if you ask me. But, you know, you'd want to be like, well, you know, it'd be, it'd be better if, you know, you read this because it would explain that or something, you know? I mean, I don't Yeah, it's like you don't want to kick down. That was the only thing about that article and all the comments I, I saw. I mean, like, and I'll put a, a list. Uh, you know what? I'll develop a, you know, God, from Wet Planet to HDO Dreams to the NOC to attainments. I mean, role practice at your Friday Y. There's just a million different ways to get better. I think a lot of people overlook, and they just want to, like, throw people under the bus. So Yeah, it's like it's very easy for it to become a way to, like, make yourself feel superior or something, you know? Yeah. So that would be, you know. I mean, not to, not to say that there was anything wrong with what that person wrote, but, yeah. yeah. I would rather empower beaters <laughs> than just like kick them when they're down, you know, but anyway, moving on to some more fake news. So did you guys see this article in the C- Asheville citizen times? Did you read this one? I don't get that paper, <laughs> <laughs> but did you read it in the show notes? What I sent to you? Did you click on it? Yeah. Oh God, you got to click on it. Okay. So it's basically, yeah. so let me tell the whole story here. So there was a, a big flood in the Nantahala river gorge. Oh, okay. It was like three, four inches of rain in 30, 40 minutes, caused these big landslides, totally shut down the road. I mean, there was four big landslides, and I'll put some pictures. If you haven't seen this, then I'll put some links and pictures in there, and you can just do a quick Google search for it. You can find everything you want. But in this article, it says, the Nantahala is a dangerous place to be. The Nantahala is going to be closed for two years, and it's all this, like, sensational news about the devastation and destruction of the Nahala. Dude, they just opened the river like a little bit ago. It's open. You know? So I don't know. Just like that kind of like fake news thing is uh I don't know. It's just a bummer to see that. I mean there's a lot of people I know who have businesses in there and do various things and <laughs> you know, somebody comes out and they're like the river's closed for two years. Well like yeah, it's like, like, I feel like you should know more about uh about sort of like administrative closures than I do, but you know, I'm guessing that they probably just had the authority to declare it closed for up to two years. And they were like, we declare it closed for up to two years until we get this cleaned up. And that was just the piece that the the writer saw when the reality was it was never really going to take anywhere near that long. You know, like you sent me that article this morning. I was like, oh, holy cow, they're going to close the Nina Halo. It's insane. Like, let's call Colburn and figure out what's going on. And like, you're like, oh, they, they already reopened it. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, let's get into the show, man. Hmm. How was the vibe? First of all, tell me about the vibe. Not the whistle, the vibe. Um, you know, it's, that's, that's a tough one to say. 
I, I would say, I mean, this is this is something I've been kind of I've been kind of poking around for the past couple months on the show, but I, you know I think it's safe to say there's no one who thinks that paddle sports is in a healthy place right now. The industry is in a healthy place right now, and so you know people are nervous. They're nervous about making money, and they're nervous about the profitability of the sport, and they're you know there's a lot there's a lot of rumors flying around as we know. Um, but you know, people are there, and they're 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 writing, they're they're doing business. But still, it's it's a nerve-wracking time for sure. You know, Jackson um, has this new sales program that came out that was kind of the talk of the show. Um, and there's different ways to look at it. Um, either you know they're revolutionary, you know, revolutionizing the way retailers can make money off of boats, or it's the beginning of the end, depending on who you talk to. Wait, explain what it is. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I don't know, this maybe verges a little bit of inside baseball, but I, I think, you know, as I described this, I think the important thing to note is that, you know, we're whitewater paddlers. And like I said, there's no one out there that's, that's super happy with the state of things, you know, and I think emotions range from concern to panic to just totally beat down. If you're talking to retailers or you're talking to sales reps, you're talking to manufacturers. Um, and this has been going for years and, there's any number of culprits out there, but you know Jackson has this new sales program. I think that for for better or for worse is addressing this sentiment. Um, and so I talked to Colin Kemp this morning about this because I want to get my facts straight because I knew this was going to come up. Um, and Colin Colin is the director of sales at Jackson, but he's been in the business forever in all sides. He was a retailer of ours for many years, and you know uh, he knows what he's talking about. But but basically. Um, the program with Jackson works like this is first of all, they're going to, they're selling boats online, right? And you can either buy boats directly from the Jackson website, or you can buy select models from Amazon. Um, you know, Jackson's listing boats on Amazon. So the boats are listing on Amazon are just the most popular boats and a few select colors, but their entire product line is represented on their website. Uh, and if you're a retailer, of course, you're immediately thinking that, you know, your, your initial reaction would be, this is the, this is the end. Um, however, you know, the, the caveat, and this is a big caveat is that, um, if Jackson sells a boat near a retailer, the retailer, and this depends on the sales channel, whether it came off their website or came through Amazon, the retailer gets, um, a portion of the sale. And if the retailer has the boat in stock, um, Jackson's going to direct the customer to that store to get the boat. Um, and in which case the retailer will get full margin and opportunity to upsell whatever they want to the customer. Um, if the retailer does not have the boat that's closest, that's, you know, the, the retailer is close to the customer does not have the boat, Jackson will either ship the boat to the retailer free of charge to the customer, or they will drop ship the boat to the customer, but the customer at which point will pay shipping. Um, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's kind of a big deal, right? I mean... And, and, you know, the way Colin explained it was that they don't want to be left out of Amazon. This is a legitimate, huge, undeniable sales channel that virtually almost every other brand in the world is available on. And they don't want to be left out on that. Um, they're trying to help retailers sell boats. but I th- And I think that's legitimate. But I think the other side of it is, is that retailers just simply are not selling enough boats anymore. Um, and, you know, this is, this is a, in my opinion, a matter of big concern for our industry um because this just isn't jackson saying this is this is you know almost everybody in the supply chain saying the same thing um and then core and addison 
Um, say what you will about Corin, uh, but he gave a, a talk about this exact issue at the show, um, which got a standing ovation. I wasn't there, but people were generally very, very receptive to what he was saying. Um, and what he was saying was, and, and I happen to believe this 100%, is that at least in Whitewater, I, I don't know much about the fishing world, but at least in Whitewater, we do not charge anywhere near enough for a boat. Um to support the manufacturing of these things, the design of these things, the sales of these things, and especially for the retailer. And to buy a boat, you really have to, I mean, this is true for what we sell too in many cases, but to buy a boat, you really need a retailer involved. And as it stands right now, retailers just don't make enough money on boats. I mean, the average margin on a boat, on a whitewater boat is what, 20, 25%? That means if you buy $100,000 worth of boats, if you, I'm sorry, if you sell $100,000 worth of boats, you're a retailer, you're going to make $20,000, right? That's 20, 20, that's not even enough to pay someone to sell those $100,000 worth of boats. I mean, that's a, that's a lousy margin, especially for the size of these things, the amount of warehouse and the amount of risk you take buying these things. That's, and, that's a terrible bet. And speaking to the risk, if you end up with five unsold boats, then you have zero profit margins. That's right. You know, so. I mean, it's razor thin and there's no one, no, I mean, you, you really, it, to describe it as a risky business selling whitewater boats in this day and age would be, in my opinion, an understatement. I mean, whitewater boats should, I mean, I know this is going to be a huge disappointment and a shock to many of the customers out there, but whitewater boats should cost around $2,000 a piece. Um, and Corn was suggesting more. And at that level of money, you would actually be able to, uh, you, you know, and employ better designers. You'd be able to have better manufacturing. You'd have better designs. You'd have actual engaged sales forces with better stock. You'd have better instructional programs. You'd have a much healthier industry. Um, we just have this enormous downward pressure on pricing right now, whether it be from the internet or through insecurity and our ability just to sell a $2,000 boat uh, for whatever reason that we just don't think that's possible. But we are strangling ourselves with these prices. We really are. Um, and it's, it's a huge concern to me because we've watched our number of retailers drop precipitously over the 10 or past 10 or 15 years, which has had a huge impact on our business. Um, and if we, if these guys can't sell, if these guys can't sell boats and make a decent, you know, margin off of this, if this, we have a, we have a real problem on our hands. That's going to affect all boaters and it's going to affect all, you know, the quality of every boat you buy. So, I mean, I think that was, you know, I mean, that was the, to me, the big theme of the show, you know, Jackson introducing this program, people's reaction to it, um, whether they're doing something to really try and raise, you know, all ships in this thing or whether it's a, it's a bellwether of, of worse things to come, you know? Um, so I, I think, well, I'm not sure if that answers your question or not, but that's, that was my takeaway from the show, um, in terms of its relevance to our, our listeners. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look at mountain bikes, right? I mean, mountain bikes, a cheap mountain bike now. I mean, relatively cheap mountain bike is what four grand, right? And and, and people go, they go, they, they drop the money, they buy the bike, and when the bike, when the derailleur breaks two weeks later, they bring it back to that same bike shop and pay two hundred dollars to get the derailleur fixed, right? Um, and there's four bike shops in, in Hood River, a town of what eight thousand people, and they're doing fine, they're busy. Uh, you know, I don't know the bike industry that well, but it sure looks a hell of a lot healthier than paddle sports. And in a $2,000 whitewater boat would be probably one of the cheapest pieces of gear you'd buy in the gorge. Um, if you look at everything else that people are using, I know this is, this is a, a pretty privileged area and, and, but that's, yeah, I mean, I would say, 
I would say that they're, you know, the bike shops are in a similar space where there's, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a different dynamic because so much of it is, is pressure coming from internet shopping. But, you know, I think bike may, or uh, bike shops face the same pressure in terms of like, you know, like if you don't sell the bike, you know, you lose the profit margin. And the shops that seem like they're doing well are really heavily focused on repairs and, you know, stock a relatively minimal number of, of bikes on the floor, right? Like, I mean, it's not like when, you know, 20 or 30 years ago when you'd go into the bike shop and there'd be just like bikes on bikes on bikes. It's like, yeah, we can order you what you want, but mainly we're here to, you know, here for sure. I think they're, but they're priced, those bikes are priced in such a way that, that these, that stores are still making money off of them. I, I, right now stores just don't make enough money off of a a $900 boat sale to do anything with it. Right. And yeah. just like repairs are an integral part of, of, of biking, you know, instruction should be in it should be an integral part of the retail experience, at least for many retailers. Right. And it's really hard to put money into that program when it's just a, such a risky proposition from the get go. Um, I, I think there's some there's some momentum gr- growing for this movement within the industry. Uh, and I know this is once again not going to be the best news for consumers, but I think they need to get ready. They need to start wrapping their head around the idea that. They got to pay into the system if they want to have quality boats and 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 uh, a quality experience buying these boats. Um, I mean, I think yeah. it would be worth it if it actually spurred some innovation in in you know boat construction and design. I mean, I think that we've, we're kind of living through a relatively a relatively solid upswing in terms of boat design, but construction hasn't changed much. In 30 years right i mean i mean imagine i mean imagine you're you know once again i do not know these guys balance sheets i have to be perfectly clear on that but imagine you're an investment company who's who's you know owns confluence or your investment company or the people pumping money into jackson you're looking at the numbers of whitewater you're like we're not this is not an industry that that is making much sense for us from a money standpoint at least that's my that's my take on it if you look at the number of both companies that have gone out of business over the past 20 years, it would certainly suggest that, you know. I mean, has there, I've said it before, but has there been a standalone successful whitewater bone company in the United States? The answer is no. Never. I'm going to put on my retailer hat for a second, just in this yeah. discussion. Yep. So, if I'm the bike shop retailer, and someone comes in and they want a giant bicycle... They, they can't go to giant.com and buy that bicycle. They have to buy it through me. Right. But if someone goes to a paddle sports shop and they want a Liquid Logic kayak or an immersion research dry suit, they can go right to you and buy it. So there's de- so there's the, the pricing pressure is not there. They, they, can't, they can't dictate the price because someone else is going gonna, is gonna to sell less. And what I see with, this, with what's going on with Jackson, and if I'm a retailer, I'm scared to death. Because what Jackson's done is they've looked at the books and they're like, all right, we're not gonna gr- we're not gonna sell more kayaks. Our our option is to increase margins, and so they're willing to go through servicing the customer and figuring out the shipping and do whatever they got to do to increase their margins. So, I mean, if I'm a retailer, if I'm a retailer, dude, you know, it's gonna be a struggle. And like you say, I do think it has to be based on instruction, has to be bringing in new people into the sport and whatnot, because there's no way a retailer can compete with a manufacturer on price and for sales. 
There's just no way. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, you know, and this program has not rolled out yet, but to be clear, the program as described, you know, uh, Jackson's not going to make any more money off these sales than they would selling them wholesale. They're, they're giving pretty much the entire margin to the retailer in that area. Um, this is as the program's described. I mean, I think I'm sure there's a lot of skeptics out there who are like, yeah, sure, that's the way it's, you know, we'll see about that. But, you know, before we make that judgment, we should see how it rolls out. Um, you know, and I think another big concern for retailers would be that they make their money when when customers come into the store. They're not making money off of boats, but they make their money when they come in and buy a bunch of other stuff with the boat. Um, and if they're getting bypassed, you know, through a direct sale, you know, that's not great for them. I, I think Colin addressed that exact subject by saying a customer can get a boat shipped directly to them, but they're going to pay for the shipping. But if they have to, if they can get it shipped to the retailer and go to the retailer to pick it up, they won't pay the shipping. I think that will be incentive for most people to actually visit the store. Um, I, I mean, say what you will about the program. The program may be, you know, given the circumstances, the best thing that Jackson can do to keep this this industry alive. But my point is, the circumstances are not good. Yeah. And this oh. program isn't coming out of a healthy industry. This program is coming out of somewhere else that's not so healthy. I agree with that's that. That's my opinion on it. I, I'd like to have Colin come on at some point to talk about this if if he's so inclined or if we have time to do it. But no, I I, I agree with that. I mean. We'll see how it all shakes up. There's going to this is this is what everyone needs to understand is there is going to be some kind of shift. If it's more expensive boats, if it's skipping parts of the sales process to increase margins, something's going to happen. I so, don't know that you could sell whitewater boats direct from manufacturer to customer. I, I don't know that that's really you're pushing the limits there, one on the cost of shipping, but also you're pushing the limits on, you know, customer satisfaction. I mean, you just can't, it's really hard to buy a boat without trying it. Yeah. You know? Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the salient point is, is that, you know, I think the listeners out there who, who aren't in the industry need to realize how, you know, there's, there's a sense of distress out there that's palpable for real, you know, that, that something needs to happen here soon. On the on the on the upside, the demo day was actually a lot of fun. It's the you know we have this event in Oklahoma. Um, I'm not sure how useful it is in terms of actually selling product, but I did get to try a whole bunch of different kinds of boats, um, and it's a fun course to paddle. So I got just like I tried the the new rewind back to back with the Ripper to, to see how they paddle back to back. I mean one lap and one each boat. I paddled some other sort of newer brands of boats, and I paddled one of Corin's boats. So it was really fun to do that. What's your what's your vibe on the rewind versus the ripper? Personally, I still prefer the medium. I paddle a medium ripper. That's what I paddle every day around here. And then uh, I paddle the medium rewind. Personally, I like the ripper. However, that's for completely subjective reasons. I think they're both excellent boats. They're both they're both great. Um, I mean, you know, the interesting was was that I actually paddled I paddled um, a boat uh, from. Who is those guys' name? Varus, 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 Varus. Yeah, yeah Varus boats. And you know, you got it. You got it. A company like this, you have to support. Right? These are the guys that are up and coming, and they're going to be the ones that replace the old school boat designers, right? Um, and so I paddled one of their boats. It's a lot of fun. But uh, and once again, you have. I mean, anybody who gets started in the sport, you have to start where they're starting right now um, in the industry. Uh, and I, I, I applaud them for doing what they're doing. Um, 
but when you get to one, you know, one of these, uh, like the, the rewind or the ripper, um, these are really, uh, you know, the products of guys who are at the top of their game. I mean, they're really, really good. Um, so I don't know. And then Corn's boat, I paddled a funky monkey. Have you guys paddled this before? Mm. Grace, have I've you seen, seen it. Around? I've seen it. Yeah, it's like it. a, I don't know. It's a really long half slice boat. Like an Ooh. outburst. Dude, I like yeah. that rewind simply because it was like nine and a half feet. And I just, I don't know. Just, I mean, I talked about it earlier in the show, but it was is cool being lar- about that long. Is the large one wide or is it? Still no, 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 no. It's nothing like. No, no, no. It's uh, it's just basically longer. I paddled the large ripper a bit when I was out in Colorado, and I it didn't really sing for me. I'm I'm way sweeter on the on the medium. Yeah, see, just and, purely and on width. That goes back to exactly what we were saying because the medium, I didn't dig it. I got in the large ripper, loved it, and that goes back to how important the retailer is to getting in a boat that fits you well, demoing them, and like your experience is so much better. You know, I think that's what everybody wants. The manufacturers, retailers, everybody. So. I mean, I, I should clear something up, too, because I know how this is going to go over with Varus. There's going to be people out there who love their boats that they're making. I'm not trash talking them at all. Right. Uh, and they're going to have a diehard following based on the size company they are. And we need as an industry, we need to support these guys. Right. You know, getting people in those in their boats is the way that they're going to get better at doing what they're doing. Um, and they're obviously committed to this because they're producing boats and they're at the show. Um so they deserve a shot just like everybody else. And, you know, their boat was – it was a fun boat to paddle. There's no question about it. So I, I don't want to sit here and suggest that you shouldn't support these guys. That's the farthest thing from the truth. What about some of the other boats that I've seen that, I, that were kind of getting spread around? The Alpha, that ozone, that carbon ozone. What was the deal with that thing? The Piranha boat? Yeah. I sent you the pics, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you talk to the boys about it? I don't know. That doesn't speak to me. You know, when I saw that boat, it made me think that how much, how regional preferences influence boat design. Because the the explanation I got on that boat was that that was a boat to address the British market who had a hard time with the Ripper in terms of squirtability or the European market. And I'm not sure if that's true or not. But what is true is that you get clicks of boaters like Dave Fuseli obviously has influenced what goes on with Piranha. But, you know, the kinds of rivers that he paddles, you know, and, and the things that he does in a boat are different than what someone on the East Coast may paddle, right? Or what they what they want in a boat, or certainly in Europe. Um, so, I don't know, the Ozone wasn't my kind of a boat. It was just it was just too playful looking. You know, I want something that paddles more like a real boat, and that's kind of tough to squirt. Just the, just hard enough to squirt that it's still you still feel comfortable taking down big water. What about I don't that? What do you think? What do you think of the pictures? I didn't paddle. I didn't paddle the ozone. I mean, what did you think of it? I just thought it was interesting that they had a carbon boat and it was kind of a unique shape. You know, it wasn't a half slice. It wasn't like a full slice boat. What was it like a Loki? Yeah, no, it wasn't as slicey as a Loki. I didn't think it was more like no, not as slicey as a Loki. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I just looked different. That's why I was like, "What is that thing? Go check that out." Put the pictures on the show notes. I sent. I will. It was. People can see for themselves. I definitely will. Not... What was that, Lewis? Oh, I was just trying to find the picture. Um, I think it was texted to me. I don't think I sent it over. Um, what else? Anything else? Uh, from the show, from Paddle Sports Show. Yeah. No. 
No, not really. I wish we were back at Outdoor Retailer, but I think that ship sailed. Yeah. yeah. Lewis, do you have anything on the policy front you'd like to discuss before we get into a few uh, listener mails here? Oh, sure. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm like rapidly being sucked into the siphon of e-bike policy. What's, what's your vibe on e-bikes? Dude, have you ever... You love them. Lithium-ion f- technology is the wave of the future. Oh, they're fun as shit, dude. They're fun as shit. Oh, this is good. Well, the, uh, David Bernhardt, Secretary of the Interior, just with the Secretarial Order a couple of days ago, basically saying that the, the land management agencies within DOI, which is National Park Service, BLM, Fish and Wildlife Service, basically everything except for the Forest Service, is going to be required to allow e-bikes everywhere that bikes are allowed. So I got to ask. That is first of big all, news right there, dude. Right. It is big news. So and what what does that mean? Like why for, why would they do this for one thing? Now is that ES, is that like, ES, here? Is that e-assist bikes or just a a bike with an electric motor? All three classes of e-bikes that are currently regulated. So Class 1 e-bike is like low-speed pedal assist. Class 2 e-bike is throttled. And a Class 3 e-bike is uh, pedal assist up to 28 miles an hour, which is fast. And they're all good and to go. They're all up to 750 watts. I think that's within the classification system. And, you know, it's not our interest at Outdoor Alliance to be anti-e-bike. We're not... You know, I don't, you know, my personal feelings aside, we're not trying to like go on e-bike jihad, <laughs> but the big concern from our perspective is that if every time you allow bikes to the party, they're allowed to bring their rowdy friend e-bike, that's going to make it much harder for us to maintain traditional mountain bike access in places where that access is tenuous. So and why so, do like, this? Dude, What's the upside? Crazy can yeah. of worms. It's not like e-bikes have a gigantic lobbying group, or maybe they do. What, what am I? What am I missing? Oh, they here? do have it. A... I mean, I think part of I think part of the pressure is probably coming from concessionaires, like people like you know, like Delaware North and Zantera and folks like that who want to be able to rent e-bikes to you know national park visitors and have them feel like they can go wherever they want. Um, I think part of it is is. Bernhardt feels like he has a mandate just to to open up access everywhere, you know, for whatever. I think, you know, the National Park Service in particular was interested in sort of pulling together stakeholders and having a more nuanced and responsible e-bike policy. And, you know, what that actually would look like in practice would be relatively hard to implement, especially as the technology changes and... Very nice things come onto the market, and you know their their mentality is sort of like, let's just treat them as bikes. Like, like are they are they bikes or are they motorcycles? Let's just say that they're bikes. And you know, from our perspective, really, the answer is like, I mean, they're neither, right? It's like they're their own thing, and you know, there are places where they belong. That you know, there are plenty of places on single track where e-bikes are fine. And it's totally reasonable to say we're not going to treat these things the same that we tra- as the way we treat motorcycles because they're not really, you know, they're not dirt bikes either. But to say that, you know, we're going to allow, anytime we allow bikes, it seems 
certain that that's going to have negative repercussions for for bike access and like i'm thinking about the example i keep thinking about and this is on the forest service on forest service land rather than land management doi but i mean i think it's a dynamic that could play out you know really anywhere is uh been working on this forest plan revision for the Custer Gallatin in Montana. And there's an area called the Lionhead that has this like really premier long alpine mountain bike ride. And it's on, you know, it's like a trail that's been there for a long time, but it's in a pretty sensitive environment. And there was a lot of interest from the conservation community in having this place be recommended wilderness as part of the forest plan, which would essentially close it to bikes. And you know, we fought really hard or we are fighting really hard through this forest plan revision process to say, you know, let, let's find another conservation friendly designation for this landscape. We want to protect the conservation values, like, you know, do everything that we can possibly do to make this like wilderness, except we don't want to kick bikes out. We want to keep this place open to bikes. And if having that conversation meant that we had to allow e-bikes also, you know, I'm not sure that we would have even been able to find consensus within our own coalition of, of uh, organizations, let alone been able to get support from, you know, conservation groups and folks like that to find some sort of alternative path forward there. Like if, if it meant for sure that we had to allow you likes as well. And it's like, you know, these things, even setting aside the fact that they're, you know, they're heavier, they can go faster you're also just covering more ground and that means, you know, more people sort of disturbing the landscape, more opportunities for wildlife contact conflict, more opportunities for user conflict, right? It's like if you're hiking, you're sort of used to paying attention to bikes moving fast and down the trail. But if now somebody can be going 28 miles an hour up the trail, that's kind of like, you know, that's changing the vibe for a lot of people out on the trail as well. And like, you know, there are places where these things belong for sure, but to say everywhere all the time, no matter what, is uh, <laughs> it's going to create a lot of problems. And the National Park Service came out with a statement like a day later that looked like they were sort of going to find a way to implement this that was a little more nuanced and reasonable. So I hope that that's what carries the day. But, you know, they're going to have to go through a rulemaking for all of this and we'll be involved. So I don't know. Stay tuned. But Keep a lid on it, please. Whole, when I go biking, my whole goal is to go is to go far enough away and make it a miserable enough climb that I'm not going to see anybody. <laughs> yeah, I hear you, man. Right? I, hear you. I know, like the bottom quarter of Post Canyon, I need to get out of as fast as possible. <laughs> right, and ascend into the Netherlands of Kingsley Lake and other remote areas where people are just too lazy to paddle to. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. Those days are done, dude. It's because you're an elitist, Weld. We just want, you know, no matter how fat you are, you should be able to go wherever you want at any time. (laughs) (laughs) With no effort. Dude, that's a crazy rule. It seemed like we had a pretty good good way of sort of, you know, protecting these places. That was sort of built in. Like, if you can't pedal your ass out there, then you can't go. Right? Yeah, so, so true. Dude. I mean, that seemed pretty simple. Why mess with that? And where and where <laughs> I mean, this? What's the other side? I don't understand it. I just don't. I don't get it. And where the technology is going to be in five years versus now? You know what you can do with eight hundred and fifty watts, dude. It's gonna be nuts. Have you guys spent much time on an e-bike? None, dude. I rode one for about a minute, and I was like, 
Not for me. Dude, you can haul some ass on one of those things. I mean, you're roosting up hills in, like, a gear you'd be in your granny gear and, like, fifth gear. You know? It's a, it's, that's going to be crazy. That's going to be interesting. You know, we're going we're gonna to have them in our boats, and there's going to be some kind of, like, gyroscope deal like the Segways have, so we're not going to have to be able to roll anymore. That's going to be sweet. Ah, oh, that'll be sick. Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, we, we got to move on here. We're an hour in. We've got to get to our um, our Colorado water rights segment, which we've been meaning to do this show for a long time. It's pretty fascinating the way they deal with the water there in Colorado. There's always this part of me that feels like all the states are going to end up like that at some point. You know, everybody. Arguing. Oh. Um, should we do a listener mail or two here? Let's do, um, let's do uh, Denny Quartz. He says, CKS out of business? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Mm-hmm. Message body. CKS, on, CKS Online still had their website up and running. Is John sure they're out of business? If they're not, that's a pretty shitty thing to say. Hmm. I believe that's directed right. at you, Will. Yeah, straight up. Uh, all right, let me clarify. CKS uh, was a company uh, that was you know one one company. Um, started by, I think, Jim Stolquist, right, back in the day, sort of along your vertical manufacturing retail lines way back in the day, 70s, 80s, somewhere in there. Um, it was bought by these two guys and their wives. Uh, Chad and Earl were the principal guys there. Um, they ran this thing as a joint business for many years. And then um, they split up and they formed recently, uh, maybe what, five years ago or so? I don't know, maybe exactly date, right? But they split and became CKS Main Street, which was going to be uh, a brick and mortar store in Buena Vista, Colorado that would not sell online. And then CKS Online um, branched off to be sort of a whitewater specialty brand that, that would sell directly online. And that's who I was specifically talking about when I said CKS goes going out of business because. Uh, CKS Online did, in fact, switch owners um, last year. And, you know, now CKS Online, the the name and the website's owned by Hala, the people who make the uh, paddle boards, right? And um, they bought it, uh, you know, from Chad, who was running the online business, Chad and and a couple other people. Um, But, you know, without... Uh, getting into financial details, the the financial entity that was CKS Online certainly ended. <laughs> um, and if, you know, I'd love to have Chad come on and discuss this. We talked briefly about it at the Palisport show. He was there. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the Hala is a new owner of that company, and they basically have all new financial relationships with the, with the people that sold to CKS Online. Some of them they picked up, some of them they didn't. Um, I'll just leave it at that. But uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, the CKS Online went out of business and they were sort of recovered from, from Hala. And I don't think anyone would disagree with that. So I know that does require some explanation. The point of that was, and this goes back to the thing I've been saying earlier, is that this is definitely a sign of distress in this industry. Because in my opinion, no one was doing a better job of servicing the customers in CKS Online. Right? And they were just getting battered. Um, so... Uh, and that was my point I was making is that you know when they go out of, when it's a place like CKS Online who's does did a remarkable job of doing what they did and Holland may do as well I don't know it's it's early to say they've only had this business for a few months really um, it's troubling it really is it's, it's very troubling. All right, I think that clears it up. <clears throat> so do they owe you money? 
They don't anymore. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, moving on. This comes at us from Patrick. Patrick says, The end of the show was a little abrupt. No rants or raves. It's everyone's favorite part of the show. You know this was a rare occasion where Lewis probably had a planned rant or rave. You may be giving Lewis a little too much credit there, Patrick. Um, (laughs) One more. Ben Perrin. Um... Hey, guys, as usual, love the show. Thanks for spreading the good word that is whitewater kayaking. If a class four kayaker, asking for a friend, were trying to take it to the next step in their kayaking career, what would be the top five things, top five things they should focus on besides hard boating skills? Things like being able to get out of your boat in a surging eddy in order to scout or portage or stomping the seal launch after gorilla. Would love to hear y'all's take on this. Also, you guys should... Keep bringing more boaters on the show that help pioneer the sport. Dan Dixon is a paddling instructor legend in the southeast, and we'd be a great addition. Uh, addition. Much love, and keep up the good work. Um, portaging is a good skill. Um, I'm just going to jump in there and throw some of these out there, guys. Feel free to add. Portaging is a really good skill. Super good skill is being able to boat scout. Getting good mm. at boat scouting. Mm-hmm. Um, pulling into the last eddy, that's going to save you so much time and get you down the river so much better. Hand signals with your crew, that is a really good one to have. So there's some basic universal signals and whatnot, um, but that's a really good one. Being able to roll from any position, super good one. I'm still working on that one. Um, what do you guys got to add to the list? I'm going to say head game. You have to have your head game together. And that can occur, that can be practiced at all levels of boating because everybody, when they learn to boat, all the way up to the, the last river they paddle, uh, can get scared running a rapid, right? Oh, yeah. Um, but part of the trick when being scared is not just a matter of you're scared just because it's unknown, but you're scared because you're legitimately worried about getting killed and or you know, hurt very, very badly. Um, which can happen in class five is the ability for you to not be obsessive, obsessively worrying about this event a week before you go to the river, not worrying about it every minute of the shuttle drive, not worrying about it. So you get to the rapid, you're nervous while you're scouting the rapid, you decide you're going to run it. You can sit in the boat. You can take a deep exhale, get your, you know, your mind together and paddle the thing the way you should rather than all jittery and terrified. And that's, that's the head game. And that's, that's a learnable skill that actually does take some maintaining and that can be practiced at any, at any step of your boating career. Yeah. I would say related to that is just cultivating a really good sense of like, can I make this or can I not make this? Mm-hmm. Like giving yourself moves to make on the river where you're, you know, where it's class three or class four or whatever, and just stopping before you do whatever it is you're about to do and being like, am I a hundred percent sure that I can make this? And like, just, getting accustomed to that thought process of being like, would I, would I do this with my life on the line? Like, am I a hundred percent certain I can make this move or am I only 75% certain? Because like when you're operating in class three, four whitewater, you know, like you don't have to be that sure because the consequences aren't that bad and you can just kind of wing it without really thinking about, you know, in a real serious high risk way about how certain you are that you're going to be able to do this thing that you're trying to do. Right. Role you playing. Know. We should call that role playing. I've always felt like risk. People don't have a, a good idea of what risk really means because if you're running, 
if you're doing a, a class five rapid where you have to make a move where if you mess up the move, you could drown, for instance, you know, I think the level of acceptable risk there is there has to be a 99 point something percent chance you're going to make that. You should be able to do that move almost 100 times out of 100. And that would be somewhat acceptable risk. You know, if you're down to like 97 percent or 95 percent risk on that move, that's an insane amount of risk. Right. I mean, no one operates at that level. You're getting to Russian roulette territory at that point. I am. Um, so. Yeah, and I mean, I, I guess then the last thing I would say is just like there's no, there's just no substitute for time of the boat. Like if you really want to run her or whitewater, like you got to just kayak as much as you possibly can, even if that most of that is on easy lame whitewater in your slicey boat or whatever. Uh-huh. Like you just got to paddle a lot. Right. No, I agree with that. I think that's a good list right there. That's more than five. Uh, we've got some more emails to get to. Man, we're going to do it, but I'm going to get, uh, we're going to move into our uh, conversation with Dan and Christina here. Let me find there. Yeah, battery down to 49% here. Uh, Lewis, you're going to have to walk inside and recharge that thing. There's no way we're halfway through. <laughs> I say we're about a sixth of the way through this show. Oh, we have so much more. We haven't even got to Adrian's letter yet. Do we... <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I don't want to go Adrian though. short. I mean, I, I she, her 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 very her, her very strong opinion needs to be heard. Hey, come on! She had a that was a great email, you guys. No, I know. I'm saying it. She it yeah. needs to be. I mean, her sentiment was not unusual out there for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, Dan, are you there? I am. All right. Can you hear me all right? All right. Is Christina there? She is. She's just putting an earbud in, and I think we're getting going. All right. Sweet. How do I say your last name, Dan? Nimala. Nimala. Okay. I was pretty close. Yeah. All right. So on the show here, we have Dan Nimala. Dan is a geologist by schooling, but primarily does water rights expert support litigation, whitewater enthusiast, kayaking, and rafting connoisseur. As well, we have Christina Wynn. Hydrologist by schooling, primarily does water rights planning, litigation support. Um, She works with Hattie, who we're going to have on the show later at AW. Um, I know we've been talking about doing this show and bringing you guys on for a while, so I certainly appreciate you making the time, and uh, I'm ready to get into it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Yeah, just listen to your show and um, the kind of discussion of outdoor access you know, access to good whitewater in Colorado is pretty limited due to climate. And a lot of the flows are controlled by dams and diversions and everything else. And it fits into kind of an interesting framework. And thought you and your listeners might want to hear a little bit about how all that works. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I want to hear about it. Um, let's start out with, for, for anybody who doesn't know, let's start out with Colorado water rights history. It's a hard thing for me to say. Colorado water rights history. <laughs> Can you go Hard into that? Hard thing to understand. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, kind of the, the framework of Colorado is that there's a lot more demand for water than there is supply. And it's been like that since eight, late 1800s, give or take. And there was a lot of foresight in the uh, kind of water rights framework um, as the state was being settled and people were looking for gold and doing mining. Um, the concepts of first in time, first in right from California mining 
uh, kind of worked their way into the philosophy of how water would be distributed under limited supply. And actually baked into the Colorado Constitution is this concept of first in time, first in right. So a more senior water right can tell other water rights to stop diverting when supplies are short. And then that framework has kind of, um, that's, that's the framework on which uh, Colorado water runs. And it's evolved over the years through um, laws and a lot of uh, court battles. And one of the things that's interesting is that in addition to new technologies that have guided how water rights get administered, also kind of new philosophies have um, evolved in terms of what is a beneficial use of water, which is the kind of founding principle of uh, Colorado water rights. And for example, in um, I think it was 1973, the state legislature first uh, recognized just keeping water in the stream as having a value and a beneficial use. And so the Colorado Water Conservation Board can hold uh, water rights to keep water in streams. And then as a result of some, uh, some litigation to develop kayak courses, um, this legislature also recognized uh, kayak courses or recreational in-channel diversions as a uh, um, beneficial use of water. And so you now have water rights for kayak courses like that in uh, Glenwood Springs and Golden and Pueblo and Buena Vista and so forth. So real quick about this hierarchy who's at the top of the hierarchy who's the real who's the, who's pulling the puppet strings so you know fundamentally it's irrigators because it's kind of who was here first using water and primarily that's irrigators about 89 percent of the water in the state is used for irrigation or consumed by irrigation and so by roughly the um, late 1800s early 1900s in lots of the basins South Platte, Arkansas in particular, and Rio Grande, 100% of the kind of base flow or non-peak flow was spoken for by agricultural water rights. And so since then, as additional demands have come on with uh, population growth, municipal uses, and so forth, some of those irrigation rights have been changed for other types of uses like municipal. The uh, Division of Water Resources fundamentally administers water rights and tells people who's allowed to divert and who's not based upon the seniority of their rights. Um, the courts determine the value of different water rights, you know, what the uh, priority date is, the amount of flow, the types of uses, and so forth. And then um, on kind of a basin-by-basin -basin basis, um, water users and water conservancy districts have various agreements that um, provide for how a, a certain river is run. And Christina has a lot of experience with how the Colorado River runs, um, and I can speak to that a little bit. Like, for example, how come Gore Canyon is running um, throughout the summer, even though native flows would have dropped quite off, quite far off by then? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the upper Colorado. Is I was going to stop and just underscore this for people for a second, because I've got to think that there are a lot of people listening right now who are like, this is crazy. And just to like <laughs> underscore the point, it's that like, like water in the river, like there's no right or expectation that water is going to stay in the river. It all gets taken down to zero based on seniority of water rights. And until relatively recently, there was no recognition that there was any benefit whatsoever in leaving the water in the river. That's exactly right. I mean, the, when someone calls for water, literally that means that there should be a point in the river that's it's perfectly dry. 100% of the water has been used. 
I mean, there's and like, and lots of that's the system. And so, like, I just like I want to like just like underscore this for people listening who are not immersed in water law because like I think when you take a step back from it, it's like you're like seriously like this is kind of crazy, right? Yeah, especially in Colorado, um, and depending on where you're located, but for the South Platte Basin and the Colorado Basin, um, you know, every drop is pretty much spoken for and accounted for. And I think that's something that people don't always realize is that there's pretty tight accounting of everything that's going on in the river. Um, But I will say, I mean, there's times in different times of the year, different types of years in which there may be excess. And that's where folks are able to to work uh, to keep more water in the river when there's um, opportunities for excess um, releases or bypasses to the river. So understanding the types of years that you're going into, understanding what the forecast might look like for a given year is incredibly important in these over-appropriated systems or systems where there's more water rights allocated to folks than there is supply generally. What if you have like farmers, agriculture, whoever has, we were talking about who's at the top of the, the rung there, and one guy's downriver of someone upriver, are there any, does one person get precedence over the downriver user, or is it just the guy who started drawing out water first? It's just based on who is using the water first. So it's, it's purely first in time, first in right. And who and, appropriated that water, who got that water right decreed? Right, yeah, so whoever started using it first and then also went to the courts and got a priority date and an adjudication of that particular water right. But one of the things that we thought was kind of interesting and might be fun for your listeners to understand is that, you know, in a lot of places, you look at reservoirs as really interfering with uh, recreational opportunities. And, I mean, I think that's the case in some places in Colorado also, though, there's a lot of reservoirs that create whitewater opportunities. So, like, as a, for example, um, Bailey, which is kind of the, the classic backyard um, Denver run, I mean, the natural flows on the North Fork of the South Platte are pretty limited. I mean, on a great year like this year, the natural flow supported maybe, like, three weeks of adequate boating. But during the drought, Lake Dillon pulls a ton of water over through the Roberts Tunnel, drops it into the North Fork of the South Platte, and has Bailey running for months at a time. Um, so there's just kind of some really interesting um, recreational opportunities that are opened up by reservoirs, um, not necessarily intentionally, but that's one of the ways that I think um, water users in Colorado can work with the recreational community to go and enhance the, the timing of releases and so forth to allow people to get out on weekends and get their hair wet. I mean, that's how the green works. They're generating power, and when they're generating power and, you know, filling the grid, the water's in the river. Yeah, and Um, it's not too dissimilar to the Colorado, which is largely governed um, by the Shoshone power plant. So that is a very senior right, and so that's one of those senior rights that's not irrigation. It was built as a power plant, and that is a very senior right that essentially controls the whole river at for big periods of the year where it's pulling, because there's a call placed on the river for that water right, it's essentially pulling water down through the upper Colorado, including Gore Canyon. So it's creating flow that 
naturally might not have been there previously because the power plant is um, not satisfied at times. Hmm. And so it's running all summer just due to air conditioner usage and power consumption? Um, the Shosh- <laughs> well, it's interesting. The Shoshone power plant is pretty small and um, I don't think would run a whole lot of <laughs> air conditioners. Um, but it's, it's interesting because it's become such a fixture in Colorado water rights that folks have worked hard to make sure that the calls placed by the Shoshone power plant persist. And so various users on the Colorado have gotten together to pen agreements that um, require essentially folks to operate as if the, the Shoshone power plant was calling, even though it may be down for maintenance because it's over 100 years old. And some of the parts that are in the plant, they can no longer source. They actually have to manufacture them on site. Mm-hmm. And so it's important um, maybe not so much for power, although it does produce power, but it's important to the system because of the water right that, the senior water right that it holds. Um, yeah, we're not for Shoshone. The upper Colorado would be dewatered lots of times, times a year and you know, Gore would be running and so forth. To, to call the Shoshone power plant a, a hobby power plant would be a little <laughs> bit overkill, but to some degree it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Would that power plant ever get decommissioned? And what would happen then? Um, that's a great question, and it's it's something that is on the minds of most people. I would say most water folks on the West Slope. Um, there's concern, yeah, that the that Excel, who owns the power plant, would either, um, and I don't know what their plans are, but would shut it down, or it would become decommissioned, or someone else would purchase it. And so then there's this question about what happens to the call, essentially, because. One thing about the Shoshone plan is that it's, like I said, the most senior right on the river. And so it can call out those transbasin diversions that divert at the headwaters of the Colorado to send water to the east slope. And so there's What's great the value interest of a call in like that. Like, how much is that worth? That's a great question. And it's something that um, the water users on the west slope are trying to figure out right now. They've hired economists to try to understand what dollar figure could you put on that? What does it mean to have um, no call where there was one? And I think that the benefit of that varies from water right to water right, because um, in this Colorado water right system, there's a mechanism by which you can divert water, even though you don't have a senior priority, if you augment your depletion. So you could divert water as a junior water rights holder, even though that senior water right is calling, if you have another source of supply, so say you buy some water in a reservoir and that's released to satisfy a Shoshone call. So if that Shoshone call no longer exists, there are times when those folks don't have to replace to it. So it really depends on who you're talking to and what that value would be. But I think that there's um, a consensus maybe or there's a strong feeling anyway that we should maintain the status quo with Shoshone um, because that's the way the system has evolved. And to be clear there's no there's no market for these things because they're not transferable is that right? They are transferable so you can definitely transfer a water right from one use to another through the court system and then the the amount that's transferable is just based upon the historical use of that water right so 
You can transfer it party to party as well. Right, party to party. So use to use, you can transfer party to party, you can transfer. But, you know, Christina was touching on kind of an interesting point of how um, water rights can drive recreational opportunities. Like, if I understand that the Denver water rights portfolio quite right, one operation is to release water out of Williams Fork Reservoir upstream of Gore in satisfaction of a Shoshone call. So that keeps Gore whole and keeps, you know, flows around 1,200 CFS or 1,000 CFS, which is good boating. And then at the same time, divert water out of the blue via Lake, from Lake Dillon through the Roberts Tunnel and put water in uh, Bailey, which flows down and ultimately goes into Denver's municipal system. So it's kind of just interesting that through this water rights framework, you end up with two runs that otherwise would not be votable at all come late summer, but would be and, and are. So, Christina, are you just looking over all of these possibilities and when things come up, trying to just come up with those win-win situations? Are you, or do these just randomly happen where it's like a plus? Um, no, it, it's pretty well... Um... Uh, managed, I guess I'd say. And so what we, what I help a lot of our clients with is, and, and Hattie at American Whitewater is one of them is to work in some of these collaborative processes, like the uh, alternative management plan for the upper Colorado river wild and scenic process to help um, all of the stakeholders communicate with one another, understand what the specific goals are, whether it be for fisheries or um, augmentation of depletions or whitewater boating and understand where there are opportunities to release water in any given year type or at any given time. Um, the upper Colorado in particular is pretty interesting because obviously it's, it's um, managed under color, the Colorado water loss system. But like we were talking about just now with Shoshone, there's so many other agreements and other things happening um, that allow for different releases that might um, impact boating. So for instance, in the late part of the summer, water is often released from some of these upstream reservoirs for the endangered fish species down in the lower part of the basin, so down sort of near Grand Junction. So you have over 10,000 acre feet sitting in upstream reservoirs that is held there solely for the purpose of augmenting the stream for those fish. And so all of those things are known. We know at any given time how much is in, you know, what might be called the fish pool, how much is in the historic users pool in Green Mountain Reservoir, how much is in the Williams Fork and what's going on. And so anytime there's an opportunity and we, we see it's going to be a wet year or something, we work with those stakeholders to try to understand how um, the water users could retime their diversions or their releases to benefit the system. And to kind of put those in practical uh, numbers, like 10,000 acre feet is about 5,000 CFS for one day. Or mm -hmm. for a month, that's 167 CFS, which is, that's real water. I mean, that mm -hmm. that's the difference between you know, rocks being wet and really wet, I suppose, in Colorado. Wow. That is insane. I'm guessing, I'm guessing you guys are, every year there's less and less water to play with in general. Is that the way we're trending? Um, I think that there's more and more water rights being developed, so there's more demand on the the system. Um, our hydrology is incredibly varied, 
in Colorado. So last year we had a pretty um, nearly historic drought in a lot of, certainly in the southwestern part of the state. Um, so think McPhee Reservoir, the Dolores River, you know, they had very, very dry season. Um, and then this year it completely swung the opposite direction. And we've got, you know, had a huge snowpack, historic amounts of avalanche, just, you know, crazy stream flow in a lot of parts of the state or volume of water. And so um, it really varies year to year. And that's where the challenge comes in a lot of times is trying to understand how you can manage that. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is I think that the various climate models don't always do the best job of predicting what will happen in the Intermountain West. It's my understanding that they can't um, predict that as well, just given the topography. Um, but I think, yeah, we're definitely trending toward longer stretches of drier, hotter weather, um, which obviously yields less water in the river. Yeah, I mean, like in terms of population growth, decreasing boating opportunities, over the long term, maybe. We were just talking about how, you know, 20 years ago, Union Chutes, which is a little play wave near our office, near uh, the old Mountain Miser shop, used to run all the time and it doesn't anymore. And we're kind of humming and hawing about whether that's a change in water management. But I think for the, for the most part, many of the big municipal diversions and all the major irrigation diversions are pretty far downriver. And so the upstream boating opportunities aren't really affected so much. I guess, I, I guess in that sense, the bigger Denver gets, the better it is for streams upstream to have for water. For sure, with regards to Bailey. I mean, and I, I keep coming back to it, but Bailey provides, I, I'm just take a guess. Something like forty percent of forty to sixty percent of Denver's um, imported water supply. Oh wow! And so the more that Denver grows and waters longs and flushes toilets, the better boating on Bailey is going to get. Um, and I wish there were more opportunities like that. Is that is so, so weird. But um, that's potentially the boating through Gore Canyon gets worse, right? Because well, not as long as there's a Shoshone call. True, um, yeah. but if there's <laughs> reduced <laughs> reduced snowpack or, um, you know, like the Fraser River Valley um, is developing quickly. Yeah. And so there's not only is there growth in Denver, and obviously that dwarfs with the growth on the West Slope, but there's a lot of growth on the West Slope. And uh, even in the headwaters, like places like Grand County and in Fraser. So um it's a balance for sure. Well, yeah, like Byers Canyon, which is upstream of, uh, that's you put it in hot sulfur springs. Mm -hmm. Byers Canyon rarely has flows. Mm -hmm. um, Fraser River, I've never boated it, but uh, it's got a sh super short window and it's yep. only going to get shorter. Um, so, yeah, there's there are, are certainly those boating opportunities that are affected by the many diversions from the west slope to the east slope. Because that's the big thing is that most of our water supply in Colorado is on the western slope, Colorado drainage, the, um, you know, the Animus and La Plata and so forth. Um, most of the demand is over on the east slope with irrigation and with um, municipal growth. So what's, uh, I want to, what's, give me like your most 
far out scheme. Like you must have something that just is just like churning in the back of your mind for like some river you want to put water back in, or some idea you have that's going to like revolutionize kayaking in Colorado. Like what? What's the the Colorado Big Thompson Project imports <laughs> something like two hundred thousand acre feet a year, give or take. Maybe it's yep, two seventy. About. 240. Okay, so, that was close. So from about the Adam, through the Adams Tunnel. Yeah. And then it's carried largely in pipelines to municipal and irrigation use. If instead it was put in any given river channel, it would create amazing boating opportunities. Um, but the reason that water is often carried in pipelines is because then you can go and generate power off of it. And so that helps to pay for the, the project. Um, but that is my grand scheme. Wow. And what, what rivers would you be rewatering with that? Well, I think you could do the, the Big Thompson, and that would be a classic. How many days would the Big Thompson have water? Let's see. So 240,000 acre feet divided by two. That's 120,000 CFS in one day. Um, stretch that over an irrigation season of 180 days, that would be uh, 667 CFS for 180 days. Ah. Yeah, so like, <laughs> there's my grand scheme. Yeah, I like it. So does, does recreation, I mean, under the system you're describing, I'm seeing recreation, which is a relative newcomer to this game, they, they must have the lowest, pretty low on the totem pole, right? I mean, if you're talking about first come, first serve on this, this situation, people were, were kayaking, you know, 50 years ago. Yeah, I think the way that recreation can work into it is as being a um, low-powered stakeholder at, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the discussions with uh, water users. So if there's win-win opportunities, I mean, it's kind of one of the, the beauties of the water community is people do really appreciate the value of a win-win opportunity, and they'll just miss them unless AW or uh, recreational stakeholders at the table to point out, hey, there's a way, if there's a way you guys can operate that'll go and put more water in the river, particularly at times when people can enjoy it, um, that always gets a lot of traction. Well, and I'm sure Hattie will get into this um, when she gets her update, but this year for Gorefest, um, the river was looking a little bit low and I, and so they wanted some more water and they were able to coordinate with some other water users on the river that have reservoir water available and needed to release it for other purposes, for downstream uses. And they were able to time that in such a way that it put more water in the river through Gore Canyon during Gore Fest. So again, like Dan was saying, it's just having that constant presence in the discussion. Um, and during the summertime anyway, on the upper Colorado, there's at least weekly calls with all these different stakeholders to understand how they're operating, what they're doing, who's doing maintenance at this time, which may bypass more water, those kinds of things. So having a seat at the table is half the battle. Yeah, huge. Is there any other states that have this tunnel system where you take water out of one drainage and put it in the other the way Colorado does? I'm not aware of it, but I don't... I'm Probably not, not the way Colorado does. Probably not no. quite like Colorado, but I bet California... Um, probably Wyoming and no doubt Idaho in some places, kind of anywhere in the Mountain West where you have big contrasts between 
um, wet and dry climates due to a mountain range. And I think, you know, Colorado's unique. We're definitely headwater state. Pretty much all of the water that originates in the state leaves the state. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's hard to you try to get it to where you, you want it to go. Um, and there were some pretty really um, ingenious operators on the East Slope early in the century that were able to figure out how to do these things. Um, and they left the legacy that we have now, and, and it's all administered under the water right system. So, God, it's just mind-boggling. Who do, you, who do you guys work for? We work for a whole variety of folks. So we're a um, consulting firm that represents, um, obviously, folks like American Whitewater, um, other nonprofit sort of environmentally uh, minded folks. We represent individual irrigators, large ditch companies, um, some energy producers, uh, various municipalities that may not have the resources to hire their own on staff water right folks. Um, really, any anyone who uses water, anybody, any water rights user you could think of. Uh, we represent, we have a, several individual homeowners on the West Slope in particular that might have a pond or a well that, that they need um, a water supply for. And, and we help them to understand how to get water, how to uh, account for it, how to work within the administration and um, anything they need really support them in litigation. And where are you guys based? We're in Englewood, so just south of downtown Denver. 15 minutes south. And what's the name of your firm? Bishop Brogdon Associates. Or I guess we just changed our name. We're now yeah, BBA. We're, BBA, <laughs> we're water. BBA water now. <laughs> Colorado's a you-can't-collect-your-rainwater state, correct? By and large, yes. I mean, that's it's like so funny. Everything's always so nuanced. So, no, you can't unless you get a permit. Um, and the permitting requirements are similar to uh, a domestic well with uh, particular statutory exemptions and so forth. It's hyper-nuanced, but wow. largely speaking, no. Man, that is just just crazy. I mean, what a network, and it's just going to get more complicated. Well, I think it, it's interesting for Colorado water users to understand that there's just a, a lot of moving parts that put water in the rivers at some time and not at others and that not every dam is necessarily a bad thing for whitewater opportunities um it's it's all complex and nuanced and it's just frankly interesting to get into huh. well i think we're about done with our time here that uh, sort of blows my mind i'm not really sure how to digest all that <laughs> one way is if you have on the Colorado Division of Water Resources website, they have their stream gauges, and I think as a result of our really complex water administration, we may have one of the greatest networks of stream gauges anywhere in the country. And it's kind of a it's a cool way you can really track um, flows at different times of year and during runoff throughout Colorado, and it's a good way to get to know it. Sick. Well, I'll put that link in the show notes and. I mean, guys, do you have any, any more questions for Dan or Christina? Yeah, one last question. Um, you, you know, this is sort of a, an ongoing topic of confusion in 
misunderstanding in, in paddle sports, but who owns the water in terms of like running a river? Like if you could run Cheeseman's Gorge, how does how is that break down in terms of legality? I don't maybe this is out of your, uh, your well, so specialty, but one issue there is just the nav the navigability and mm -hmm. you know whether or not you can touch the the riverbank and all. And it looks like Christina may I know a little about that. Christina may be able to cover it more, but fundamentally, like. By the Articles of Colorado's Constitution, the people own the water of the state. Mm -hmm. like, so that's baked into the uh, baked into the Colorado Constitution, and then the the right to use the water can be appropriated. Um, so that's that's one answer. But yeah, in I don't know if this is where your question was headed, but in terms of access, um, Colorado is different than some Western states in terms of where you can access the water. And like Dan said, it's, it's sort of a, a property issue. So in Colorado, if you're not on public lands, then technically your feet should never hit the bank of the river um, until you are back on private land. That differs from a place like Montana, where as long as you access the river at a public location, the river bank essentially is public up to the high water line. So in our state, that's not the case. So you can't pull over at a mid-channel bar and hang out if it's on public or private property. So um, that certainly impacts how people recreate in the state and where they do. So technically, you could run Cheeseman's as long as you don't put on the hunting people's property and not touch the bank. And they can't yeah, say anything. I think mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah don't, don't portage any river-wide logs. Just roll under them. It gets tricky though, because you know I've ran Cheeseman, and there's places where they ha where you have to portage. They literally have like fences across the river and like mm -hmm. low hanging wires and stuff. So, I mean, it's the, it's kind of like that. Like, yeah, well, you're not doing anything wrong, but we're gonna force you into doing something wrong. So, I don't know. That's a whole nother discussion right there. Yeah, I think that's one where both the landowners that don't appreciate boaters and boaters have both realized that it's better for that not to come to a head and to just kind of try to deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis because there's always uncertainty when you go to the courts of who wins, who loses. Well, fascinating. Thank you so much for your time, guys. Hey, thanks so much yeah. for having us on. Thank you. Yeah, thank you all so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. All right, I'll send you guys an email. I want to put uh, put put your guys's website and and stuff in the show notes. I'm sure some people would be be interested to see what you guys are all about. And now that was awesome. Cool, that'd be great. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. See ya. I mean, oh, what a tangled web, you know? I don't even quite know how to where to go with that. I mean, Lewis, why why are you moving to Colorado? I mean, it just seems like a headache. Yeah, I'm, I'm having second thoughts. I got to be honest. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of sweet on British Columbia this week, so <laughs> that's where you're moving now. Uh -huh. Look, let's see if we can find. Let's see if we can find Hattie here. Hattie. Hey. All right, you're on the Hammer Factor. Thank you for coming on. No problem. All right, well, Hattie Johnson. Is it still Hattie Johnson since you got married? It is. Okay. Hattie. Not too weird. Hattie Johnson is the Gore Race organizer. She picked that up a few years ago, works for American Whitewater, an all-around badass. And uh, thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. 
All right. Well, let's get right into it. Give us a race recap. All right. Um, well, so this, yeah, this is my fifth year and by far the best turnout. Um, we had 75 kayakers between long and short boat class. We had like 22 long boats this year, which was huge. That was about 10 more than the past couple of years, which is awesome. Um, and 13 raft racers. Whoa. Which is wow. Exciting. Um, and minimal carnage. I think we had one kayak swim. Definitely some raft swims. One day. Can't expect an email from Jeff Calhoun about that. <laughs> <laughs> I did hear the last. Hear the, <laughs> the beater police are coming for you. Don't you worry. Don't you worry. You're going to take some heat. <laughs> how, how old is the Gore? How, how many years has the Gore race been going on? This is. 30th anniversary 30th anniversary wow Wow. how'd you get into it so we uh well that's a good question um it was a mistake (laughs) 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 Um, i hear you there god so i uh i used to use before working american whitewater i worked at an engineering firm called river restoration we designed whitewater parks and worked on the um, Whitewater Park project there at the takeout at Pump House, um, takeout of Gore, which is a cool project. AW is really involved. It's a, there's a water right associated with that water park, so it, it protects future development of water in the Colorado River. Um, basically, I was at the grand opening for that feature, um, and Nathan Fay was there, and he and I were talking. He's like, yeah, there's nobody organizing the Gore race this year. Um, and I found that upsetting because we had this new whitewater feature. We could have a freestyle event. We could kind of expand what um, was going on with the event. And, uh, so I expressed that concern to Nathan and he said, Oh, it looks like you signed yourself up (laughs) recognizing it. So, um, that was like, that was in like early July too. So we like super quick threw together stuff for a race luckily somebody had already like applied for a permit so we were good with the blm and um like yeah it was uh definitely grassroots super fun event and then um yeah then i like weirdly got hooked it's it's like it's brutal but super fun like kind of like kayaking (laughs) right so what would you tell racers for next year what should they do to make your life easier? Oh God. Um, like how, how should, what, what's like pet peeves or anything like that? One thing, <laughs> yeah, yes. it's small. You can even do it. You can do it Thursday before the race. Mm-hmm. You sign up online. <laughs> you save, you save money, save money. And we, I don't have to lose paperwork in the wind down on the river bank and have, waivers handed to me at the start line that get wet and it's it's as simple as that thursday thursday afternoon decide you're going to race we'll have a good idea what the flow is going to be you don't have to be too nervous about that go ahead and sign up and it's easy from there yeah you say it's easy but they won't do it god (laughs) dude it's it's like it's like herding gerbils (laughs) So who won? So we had current, like, actually, I meant to go look at this. I think he's won 
Okay, he's definitely won the past three years. Hillicky? So Hillicky won? <laughs> Hillicky, man, he I, he had an interesting gore line this year. Uh, call uh, Calhoun. Call Get Calhoun <laughs> on here. And still, and still managed to end up in third place. So, um, no, so Cody Beach won. Um, he, what kind of boat? He was in... That's a good question. Um, I want to say he was in a steamer. He might have been. People still race wave hoppers out there. Charlie MacArthur. That's it. That's it. Carrying the Aaron Cruzan three years ago, four years ago, raced one also and swam out a tunnel and said he was never doing that again. Ah, call the police. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, but. So Cody, Cody got first in the long boat, came back and raced short boat, which is, we had seven racers do that this year, which is kind of a feat. Like you have to have your shuttle, shuttle set because you, you got to paddle the four miles of flat water race, paddle the three miles of class two to the takeout, drive back up. And I like, we put a pretty strict time limit on it. So we don't have our safety just sitting in the Canyon for hours and hours. And um, so then Cody this year came back and got second place in the short boat on his second lap. Um, oh. Last year he took first in both categories, which is pretty awesome. Who pulled and in? Had, who pulled in in front of Hillicky? Uh, Spencer Huff. He's young, isn't he? Is he a junior? No, but I think he's like. He is. He he looks really young. I think he's like twenty five. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's young by our standards <laughs> <laughs> and, and and let's give the racers a little glory who are who are the who i mean the rafters who are the rafters the rafters yes so we had let's see we had a um you know and some of these raft team names are definitely going to make me blush so uh <laughs> i'm gonna go ahead and have a um all right we had we had an r2 a Stacked R2 division, six racers in R2s. Team Stab Wound. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Fun loving group here. <laughs> Team Beater took second, and Mike Hunt took <laughs> Then um, in our R4 class, we had Nine Ball, which is the men's, U.S. men's rafting team. They always, they were our overall winners, beating everybody else by about four and a half minutes. So they, they crushed. Um, there are overall raft winners, second place. All right. You ready for this? Um, second place R4 was lick a lot of Hattie, you're taking my job on the hammer factor. I'm retiring <laughs> and you are in. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Oh, anyway, so lick a lot of puss. Yep. Who else you got? Okay. <laughs> and then um, the blazing, <laughs> the blazing beavers were. Hurt. We are not. We are not helping our cause on the. the on that sexes. note, who were? Who, 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 who so so the blazing. Did the how many women like, racers you have, and how did, how did they fare? I feel like we should. Three women racers. Were, were they blazing beavers? Were they blazing beavers, boys and girls? They, <laughs> They were a bunch of girls. Or boys. No, they were boys. Uh, okay. They were definitely boys. Sorry, go on. Actually, it might have been mixed company. 
might have been co-ed. Um, but we did have three women racers. They're all in short boat. Um, Claudia won by a pretty solid minute and 10 seconds. Five so seconds. wait, wait. 70, race, 70 racers, right? Mm -hmm. Three women. Yeah, now, I'm not pandering to the the haters out there who think we run a sexist show, but I'm saying that <laughs> seems really low, right? We had 35 women, we being my wife, Kara, at the Upper Yacht Race. They had 35 women, I think, race the Upper Yacht Race. How many? <laughs> she's, getting, yeah, she's like, got the tabs. How many women race the Upper Yacht Race? <laughs> oh, 12. I'm sorry. That's but. more than we've ever had. That's for yeah. sure. Last year, it was like, fantastic we had seven i think um which is by far the first year i raced it i was the only woman hmm. um and it you know man i've beat my head against the wall about this one a lot um i at first was like a woman organizing the race like we're gonna have bigger women turnout and um but and like i'm not i'm definitely like not of the like let's find ways that you know make women feel more comfortable like giving out kittens or things like that i think <laughs> um, so. we got to be careful what we laugh at here on the hammer factor hattie just so you know people are writing emails right now yeah, right. <laughs> oh, I've, I've started a few emails to you guys a few times <laughs> just never no um yeah it's it's tough man i can't tell you why it's Colorado. like i mean you go go to the grocery store in colorado and there's only 30 percent women there so i think that has something to do with it um and it it's definitely you know i had i've actually had some friends come out like to the festival before because we do music saturday night like kind of whole festival scene and um for like non-boating friends of mine come and like they're just like this is a sausage fest. Like there's like no <laughs> like thing to hang out. It's so I it, yeah I um I would love to have more women. Um, I've you know friends boating girlfriends of mine. Um, I've talked into to racing and we've we've gotten you know it's grown it has grown over over the years but. We should make a goal to have you guys beat the upper yacht race in terms of women participation. So it'll just be 13 women. That's all you need. 13. All right. All right. That's not. I can do it. Like a little, a little informal rivalry going on here. <laughs> I, 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 like, I hate to like open up this like ball of wax or whatever, but like oh, you've got to think that like raft team names like that are not contributing to like a helpful vibe for getting women participants. Like you got to think that, right? I mean, like that's kind of fucked up. I mean, there, I didn't even. There, yeah. Oh, like there's still more raft team names that I didn't. <laughs> um, that's not like I mean it's like it's it's funny but it's not funny like I don't know like yeah no it's so it's so funny too like having um oh man I'm gonna never mind <laughs> I was gonna talk about the raft racing more oh come but... on lay it on there let's get you yeah, some emails right. <laughs> <laughs> um there definitely is, there's, yeah, it, it, and, 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 and I definitely, I won't just put it on, on the raft racers at all. Like, there's definitely a, um, 
yeah, it's kind of like, like, that's kind of what I meant by, you know, having friends come out and being like, damn, this is a lot. Like it's, it, it kind of breeds more of that. So, um, you know, I like don't have the time on race day to be like, you need to change your name and get right. to reading results at the party at night. And it's just like, Oh God. <laughs> I mean, it, and, and, and frankly too, like for every nasty raft team name, there's like, there are like folks out there, men and women that are paddling or racing and, and like down for the cause to get, to, to, to make it more inclusive. And that's like, not just of females, but of like, you know, we have stand up paddleboarding events and this freestyle event and like are really dedicated to it being a broader river event and, and festival. And, and, you know, the event now, now that AW is hosting it, um, the, the big point and like, and especially now my interest in continuing to host the event is to have, um, you know, have that broader coalition of people that use this, this section of river. I mean, Upper Colorado has Gore Canyon, this awesome, you know, class four, five whitewater section, but then downstream of that's two, three, family floating kind of thing. Like it's, um, you know, it, it lends itself to all kinds of, of river users. And, um, you know, that having those different types of river use, like then is, things that I can go take to meetings and negotiations for flows and stuff and use and, and, and talk about kind of that, that broad range of, um, of use on the upper Colorado. So, um, yeah, I think keeping, keeping things inclusive is, um, always ends up difficult in, in some respects, but, but we're moving in the right direction. For people who don't know about Gorefest, and just the whole weekend, I should have got to this right at the start of our interview, but what is it? What, what, how does Gore Race fit into what you're doing there? What's it all about? Yeah, Gore Race is, um, so the Gore Race is, that's, that's what's like three, um, 30, or sorry, 30 years old. Um, but the, um, and it's definitely like the highlight of the weekend. It's kind of like the big, um, you know, it, it takes the most planning, um, Sorry, I'm dying here. All right. Um, it's um, like, it's definitely the big event, but since, so since the the construction of the Whitewater Park, um, that was 2015, we have had, you know, we've done this, um, the freestyle event, the sub race, downriver sub race has been going on for a while. Um, but, and with that, we kind of looked around to other, um, river festivals in Colorado and, and kind of what thought us some new ideas to bring more people in because it is, um, it's into the season. No, no, there's not really a lot else going on. Um, it's kind of typically the only thing running at that time. So the whole weekend starts off Friday night. We show some films some like con river conservation films um saturday morning is all about the race getting people on shuttles and getting all those last minute people registering and then um race takes most of the day saturday um simultaneously we have stand-up paddleboarding events like sup cross and downriver race going on and then um saturday night we've got food and 
um, music back down at Rancho del Rio, which is about 10 miles downstream of the canyon, right there on the river. Um, and then Sunday, we all get up and clean up and go watch the freestyle event. Sick. So it's a, it's a full-on weekend. You're there yeah. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, I, I, went to, I went to that festival. I didn't race. What was I doing there? Oh. Oh God. Anyway, I had a I had a <laughs> <laughs> I had a big night there. I came there with Adam Druckmann. You ever know who Adam hmm. Druckmann was, Hattie? No. He was a Teva tech sales rep, tech rep, promotions guy for a long period of time. Oh God, this was probably two thousand two. I don't even know when this was. But anyway, I, I I totally was too hungover. I missed the race. <laughs> and so then I went paddling that afternoon. I lost my paddling curse bomb, got the living crap beat out of me, swam, freaking lost my paddle completely, broke my boat. And I think I've only been back one time to Gore. <laughs> but, but Tommy, man, he was just raving about, you know, the vibe. And you're obviously doing something right because something you're doing is causing some, some enthusiasm infection. Yeah, well, so. I, I, don't, I don't think I can take too much credit for it. I just, you know, folks have really been excited to turn out. Like, it was, it, the, the race itself, you know, it's been going on for 30 years. It's, it's had so many ups and downs. Like, 2000, 2001, it was huge. You know, ESPN was there, and, like, this, like, huge, um, like, it was part of the Teva circuit and, like, a big, huge, big deal. And then... Yeah from there kind of petered out a good bit um you know the first few times that i went you know prior to organizing it was fun it was just chill where's that noise coming from say i'm in a room is that you hattie i don't think so. sounds like a mac truck is driving through your office <laughs> Is <laughs> that me? Yeah, it's gone now. I don't know. But yeah, it um, you know, I think it. I I like to attribute it to the fact, like we, you know, kind of expanding the events that we offer. It's not a it's not an event that people are going to really travel super far to come to. There's like like, um, you know, we get we get a good Wyoming contingency. We get folks from all over Colorado. You know the. Drango crew always comes up strong and like it's um you know we did have a, a couple people from Tennessee this year that drove out for it which was super cool but you know it is between Gore and, and Bailey that's kind of like all we've got running this time of year typically and you never never really know so it's um it, it's super and honestly that's something I really like about it it's like super local like colorado based it's like very much like this paddling community which um it's 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 like kind of a special time for for everybody to get together because they're not going off in a bunch of different directions so um but yeah it's i'm i've been having a blast doing it but if any of your listeners out there are interested in uh in some race directing tell them to give me a call <laughs> 
Good luck with that. Uh, I think you're stuck with this for a while. Right. <laughs> Get a bunch of unsolicited advice and no offers for help. <laughs> right. Do you want to talk about boat length? <laughs> where do you where do you cut your short boat length off at, Hattie? Nine, nine, nine feet. Yeah. You're gonna keep it at nine feet with some of these like nine three nine five boats coming out. I mean, I'm just waiting for Jeff's race standards now. <laughs> so simple. I, in retrospect, maybe he's not exactly the right person to put that together. <laughs> maybe someone like Jeff. Oh man! Well, congratulations on a great race. Tommy was just raving about it, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's super. He um he signed himself himself up to help us safety next year, so I'm definitely gonna take him up on that. Yeah, he knows what's up in that camp. Switch gears real quick. Do you guys have anything else about the Gore race? Switching yep. gears real quick. Um, what's going on with AW in Colorado? Um, man. So we have had a big change at AW in Colorado. Um, so Nathan Fay, who I was talking about earlier, he was the he 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 was the original. AW person in Colorado when this when the stewardship program here was started. Um, so he and was with AW for 12 years. Um, I was hired in his position in March, I think early March, and um, quickly discovered that the work plan that he had developed for himself was um, something only he could do on his own um, because he's a workaholic <laughs> and <laughs> impressive human being and uh so with that we hired an, another person ian stafford um to to help out and so he's our colorado policy strategist and then on staff we um nathan hired a few years ago um a woman named kestrel coons who is our colorado stewardship assistant and so we have, that's like kind of our, our whole team, which is um, a little bit special for AW. Other regions don't have quite as, as much staff. So we're, um, you know, we've been figuring out how to divide stuff up between the three of us, but we're kind of rolling now. So I'm, um, I'm the Southern Rockies stewardship director. So that I've got Colorado, but that also includes New Mexico, Arizona, in Utah. And then um, we've got Ian, who's like down on the policy side of things, like working on kind of some big changes for, for water policy at the state level. And then um, Keschel's kicking ass doing uh, forest planning stuff for us. Um, she wrote a, a really impressive um, wild and scenic eligibility report for the Grand Mesa and Compagre and Gunnison National Forest that was really rad and Lewis and I've seen a bunch of that and um yeah it's so yeah we've got um my main focuses are the upper Colorado um we're developing a management plan that's an alternative to wild and scenic designation um wild and scenic is is kind of difficult here in Colorado the Poudre is the only river that we have designated and um and lots of basins and, and river and stakeholder groups around rivers have decided to, that we'll get together at a local level and determine how to manage the river locally and to protect 
the outstanding remarkable values of the river, but not to um, not not have that federal designation. So working a lot on that on the Upper Colorado. Um, the Dolores River is another big focus in mine. We had a pretty awesome release season down there this year. It was kind of bizarre and late, but ended up being a whole bunch of um, flows. I think we had over a month of boatable flows on the Dolores this year, which is rad. Um, and let's see, other than that, yeah, Gorefest has fried my brain, so I can't. <laughs> I bet it has. <laughs> AW is so rad. You ever work with Kevin Colburn much? Is he your boss? Kevin is kind of my boss. Yeah, he says he can see your house from uh, his backyard. Yeah, he can. <laughs> now he's 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 rad. He's been. <laughs> it's rad. Rad working with AW. Yeah. <clears throat> so. No, I'm to be to be doing it. I've been, you know, help volunteering and contract work for AW through the Gorays and stuff and um, this is definitely like a, a dream of mine. Just came a lot sooner than I was imagining. <laughs> so being you didn't realize it and you're interviewing for my position right now. <laughs> oh, we, we are we are way over time here. So do you want to stick with us through a couple of emails here? Do you guys want to have Hattie on for this? You guys, or should we? Sure. She sounds like a fan. She sounds like a fan. She knows the show. I yeah. think she knows how to, how to play her cards here. Um. All right. It's something outrageous and offensive. That's that's, that's <laughs> part of the course. <laughs> we'll make sure to get your email in the show notes so people know who to write. Oh man. <laughs> Sorry for the the backlash. It really. Uh, I think it's really good for the podcast. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> We've dug into a few of these. We've got several. We're at two hours and four minutes here. Should we just get into Adrian's email? Shut it down with that? Do we really want to subject Hattie to this? <laughs> yeah, let's bring it on. So introduce Adrian. She's not just some random listener. Yeah, so if you don't know who Adrian is, Adrian is a, gosh, seven-time or eight-time Green Race champion. She has won everything from home stake race to all kinds of events. She has been runner-up in some of the Freestyle World Championships. She is a um, director, I believe, at First Ascents and a full-time EM, an EMT by career. So that would be the best way. Um, and she's kind of like my little sister, if I had to say. Like I took on her first overnighter, you know, on the – south fork at eight feet and okay. also not irrelevant to this conversation is a team paddler at dagger she's the team Maybe, team manager team manager at dagger yeah and her husband snow is snowy robertson who uh you know frequent hammer factor guest so uh she writes in clean it up boys the simple fact that a podcast had to do a two-hour episode trying to clean up the mess it made in the first place is rough <laughs> The whitewater community is too small to spread rumors of that caliber. The language that Weld used sounded like he wants Dagger to fail. Well, how would you feel if this turned around and IR was the company in question? These people's livelihoods you're talking about. Paragraph 1. I'm super disappointed that Lewis was bummed out when Scott Byers talked about the good things coming out of Confluence, then asking the over-under, WTF, bro. It sucks a lot that some of our friends got laid off, but sometimes budget cuts happen to make money. It doesn't mean the company is in grave danger, and Dagger is no longer making kayaks, as we learned from the interview. 
I'm disappointed at Grace for poorly handling Jeff when he ranted about sexism in the whitewater industry. There have been eight women on the Hammer Factor in 66 episodes. That's 12% of your sh shows. In case you haven't done the math. But Grace, you can't ignore the fact that your show is not helping cease sexism in paddling. Three men on a podcast talking about kayaking. And one out of the ten shows you decide to throw in a female voice. Alright, we all got our lashings <laughs> there. <clears throat> um, I truly do think you all don't understand the magnitude of the words that flow out of your mouth. Some people listen to your show as gospel and learn everything they know about the community through your words. People don't know the difference between your bullshit banter and the fact, especially if they don't know you personally, do your research. Maybe try talking about the industry in a positive light, like how First Ascents and Team River Runner teach cancer survivors and wounded vets how to live their uh, prognosis by learning how to kayak. Or how the Ottawa Kayak School Keeners program is pouring out solid kayakers that are better than most other kayakers in the world right now, and they are 12 years old. Or how the Green River Takeover just raised over $7,000 for the Shannon Christie and Live Like Memorial, Live Like Maria Memorial funds, and had 98 women on the Green River in one day, including 33 who went down the Narrows. That right there is good news. We are all plundered every day by terrible news in our world. You have to be the ones to change. You guys need to be the ones to change that. Now let's get outside, Adrian. So, hmm. there you go. Adrian never wanted to hold back. Um, nope. I don't know. I'll get into the sexism thing. I mean, I don't know how to address that. I'm, you know. We kind of talked about it at the top of the show yeah. at length. Yeah, I, I mean, and, uh, you know, Hattie, you kind of have some of the same struggles with the race that you're organizing. If there was, yeah. I mean, your opinion. And let's not, let's you, not put Hattie on the spot on this. I mean, we right. we will That's, do that. <laughs> my, so my, all, I, I'm not, all I want to say, and, you know, and as I mentioned earlier, that I have started a few emails um to to you guys and 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 none of them um were sent because you know anyway um <laughs> i think that um that i guess the the thing that um that gets me frustrated the most you know women that kayak and women that are in the whitewater industry wow. recognize that it's um that it's you were in the minority and that's like blaringly obvious all the time to have to talk about it all the time is exhausting. Um, and we just want to go paddle and have fun. Like all the boys do. So that, that's kind of all I'll say on that. Like, I think getting into the math and breaking it down and you know, that, um, it, it's important, I think for you guys to look at that and keep cognizant of it, but to, ha to have to kind of, constantly answer questions about what it's like to be in the minority is the exact thing people in a minority don't want to do. So that, that's all I have to say. Thank you for that. Um, let's move over to you, Lewis, talking about uh, your, your paragraph. I mean, I think that we're all in agreement that we probably should not have started spreading those rumors without thinking it through a little bit more or being a little bit more buttoned down on what we wanted to talk about. But there was more to it than just the layoffs. And we only talked about the things that were sort of, you know, public knowledge at that point. And we gave Scott an opportunity to come on and talk about, you know, I think that there was an opportunity there to talk about, you know, the financial aspects of the whitewater industry and the way that John was talking about for quite a while at the top of the show. 
and to me just saying, oh, there's nothing there and pivoting to all the new votes that are coming out, that was not really responsive to the, the subject at hand. And so to me, that just felt it felt like a little bit of redirection away from what we were actually there to talk about. And so I wasn't super impressed by that, I guess. And that was the, the genesis of that comment. And I'm and I certainly didn't mean it literally, but I'll stand behind the, the tenor of it. <laughs> and, well, do you want Dagger to fail? Of course not. <laughs> I need Dagger to survive. That's my whole point, right? I need, I need people to realize that they need to take this seriously. Uh, without Dagger or Jackson or these guys selling boats to retailers, I'm going out of business. And I mean, look, we had like Joe Pulliam on to talk about the, the history of Dagger, you know, from the earliest days up to the most recent, you know, at tremendous length, like not that long ago. Right. I mean, I, don't, I, I hope that what came out of that conversation, I don't know how you could come away from that conversation being like, oh, yeah, those guys are rooting for Dagger to fail. Like, give me a break, you know, like, I mean, I, I, I've been... you know, I talked about like, I like that boat the phantom we talked about the rewind being sick like we have their team paddlers on all the time like it's like look you know like there's something worth talking about here and like like this constant effort to pretend like there's not is like that's not allaying a lot of concerns on my end at least no i mean i've been in the business for 25 years and it, it i'll be the, you know i mean i may be a little a little jaded but I do feel like any whitewater business, you're basically defying gravity every single day, staying in business. It is a brutally difficult business to, to, to maintain. And, uh, you know, I, I just can imagine any company, regardless of size, in whitewater going out of business without too much difficulty, right? Or, or the, the people that, that control it saying this, this sport doesn't make any sense. I mean, we see it all the time. It happened with Sweet, right? They looked at whitewater like this makes no sense. We're getting out. So, um, yeah, I mean, that, that does influence a lot of how I see the sport, you know, at least currently. It didn't always used to be that way, but it is, as of the moment, it is for sure. So, but it's out of concern. I, I, we, I need this, I need Whitewater to survive. I love it. Whitewater is everything to me. I need this, this industry to be healthy, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's just disingenuous to suggest that I want Dagger to fail. Of course, that's not true. Yeah, you're living it. I mean, there's good points in here. She makes good points. There's a lot of positive things we can, we can jump on and, you know. Anybody who writes an email, we say thank you. And I just want to like, you know, it's time for big group hugs. It's all, it's all okay. Nothing, <laughs> nothing personal out there. So, I don't know. We are way, way over time limit. It's time for everyone's favorite part of the show, Rants and Raves. This is our second edition of the show. Before we get into that, does anybody have anything they'd like to add before we close this puppy down? I feel like I should be preemptively apologizing for everything I just said, but... And like, I do think that Adrian had a lot of good points in that email and we'll try and do better. <laughs> yeah. Can we get a beater police t-shirt? <laughs> I, I want to, uh, we need a t-shirt of like a cop caricature with like Calhoun's face on it, you know, just like point, pointing a finger, you know, what I mean? like so, something like, you know, beater police. Oh God. <laughs> anyway, having said all that, um, I'm going to jump into a rave, and it fits right in to, you know, having Hattie on the show. Is uh, I just got a rave about all of these event organizers who are out there just, like, fully. And I thank, 
thankless position. When the race is over, everybody has a million negative things to say and one or two good things to say. And they're a big part of keeping the community thriving and awesome things happening. And I just want to give a shout out to, uh, yeah, all those people, Jeff included. <laughs> Look at you. I've had a lot of thank yous as well. Thank you. Thank you for the thank yous. <laughs> Hattie, do you have a rant or a rave that you'd like to add? I do. I do. I, um, I have a rave also. Um, and I think only now that it's been a couple weeks since the Gories, am I able to think of it fondly. But um, it really is an awesome time. And we have... I, so my rave is, is for... Um, you know, our sponsors and, and not just to plug my sponsors, but more to, um, recognize kind of a lot like from Adrian's email too, like the, the things that companies and, and groups of people are doing for the whitewater industry. Um, the, you know, we, I've got, um, some, some big sponsors from the, from Colorado whitewater, which is really up here in the state, um, from, Pete Belan, who does real estate, he also runs Bailey Fest, which is coming up on Friday, Saturday and Sunday this week, um, and and just supports it because he loves water. Um, but mostly, we've my um, my rave is about the, the uh, retail shops that come out to sponsor the event any way they can, you know year things like bring a bunch of people to paddle um we've got uh, four corners river sports crew that comes up every year like deep with folks they're like i think just for we've got 10 or so racers that are just coming up with them from durango just like spreading the stoke um jackson hole kayak club and rendezvous river sports always comes down and they've got like and there's 11 and 12 year olds coming down with them and doing the gore race. And it's just, it's awesome. And, and it's, um, you know, we, the, the best way to like wrap it all up is, um, this year for at the awards, we had Chan Zwanzig came down. So Chan <laughs> started wave sport. Oh, wow. And, uh, he, and the gore race, he start he, he hosted the original race in 1989. Um, so it was super rad to have him come down and he was he was impressed, and he he in his little speech to everybody during the awards, he said, you know, use it or lose it, um, and you guys are definitely using it. So it was, um, it was awesome to see, you know, to to hear to hear from him, who's you know been around through kind of the, all the ups and downs of it, and and having the support from, you know, the community in this region to the, keep this thing alive, um, and I, I think that's. You know, it's happening here in Colorado, but they're all around the country too, and it's exciting to see. That's awesome. We should have Chan on the show one of these days. Yeah, we'll put him on the list for sure. It's like, I, I, how's he doing? Okay, he's not so great. He's pretty sick. Really, I ran into him. I've, I think I've probably been ten years since I've seen that dude, and it'd probably been ten years before that. But yeah. he's an all-time character. He's a, he's and like have a multi-hour show if you have him on yeah and like it's like it's like out to lunch as chan it always has been in a lot of ways (laughs) so like he like i mean he 
he had some vision about what was going on with the sport, you know? I mean, he really saw things coming in terms of, like, the rodeo generation, you know, was a real driver in making that all happen, and then sold wave sport, like, right at the top, you know? It's like you talk about, like, picking picking peaks and troughs in the market. Like, he nailed it on that one, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you guys, you definitely, he would, I think he'd love to come on, too. With this, I've, he and I have been chatting on the phone a bunch. And I think he'd just have a ball. <laughs> yeah. Well, oh, me? Uh, well, Grace kind of stole my thunder here a little bit, but I'm going to rave about the Dagger Rewind. And no, I'm not pandering oh to Dagger. Here we go. But uh, <laughs> listen, it's a great boat. Right, it's legit. Just like Grace said, is legitimizing that class of half slice boats, which to me is an essential boat. That's a that's not your second or third boat that you buy. That would be a good first boat to buy, a boat in that class, right? We have enough 12 R's and things that are the tools of the sponsored boaters, and your third or fourth boat you buy. But this is a, this is a class of boat that deserves its day in the spotlight. And Liquid Logic, come on, guys, let's go, step up. Right, we have two two great boats. We have the Ripper and we have the the Rewind. What do you guys got? Man, you're ready to just abandon the Brap, huh? It's over. I think the Brap was a great boat, but I think it's a little long in the tooth now. It maybe started the revolution, right? Yeah. But the Brap and the Antic. I mean, the Antic still seems to have a lot of life in it, but I think they, that was they like, need to stop. That was like episode one or episode two of the Hammer Factor. It was the boat that saved kayaking. Right. <laughs> you know. The 9R large, the 9R2 large is going to be like 9 feet 5 inches long. You bring it to the green race. We love you. We'll put you in the short boat class. You want to be in the short boat class with that? That's fine. You know? Bring your, bring your, you know, your, your re rewind, whatever. We're all about it. <laughs> so, I don't know. I do, that is a very legit thing because I was talking to Laura Farrell about her, the Green River Takeover. And man, her and Emily Shamblatt have done a really good job with that. So I'm gonna just throw one more little, little, little bone to those guys because they have kind of started a little thing. So, all right. Well, I think that about mm. wraps up this marathon issue. Um, Hattie, you are hired. So you know you. <laughs> am, I, am I off the hook? Did I get Hattie yeah. pinched for me on the? <laughs> or are you just assuming I don't have anything? <laughs> oh wait! Oh wait! How about me? I've just—I—I kind of did. Maybe just Hattie assume. could take my place. <laughs> Possible. <laughs> did you give us a rant and rave here at the end, Lewis? I did not. Shut us down! I'm ready to hit stop. I'm gonna rave about British Columbia, man. I'm—I'm I'm over America. I'm done with it. <laughs> I think I'm just staying. I'm just living in the back of my truck at the Chequamish from here on out. Uh, there's still water up here. Mountain biking, way better. Different president. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty into it. Uh, well, thank you so right. much for coming on, Hattie. That about wraps it up for this marathon two hours and 20 minute. Jesus Christ. Hammer Factor episode 67. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm going to get out here and go do some kayaking right now. All right. All right. Bye, guys.